Thank you, everyone. Welcome to the 6th, 2022 Lawrence City Commission meeting. Uh, first, we will have some explanation of how our meetings will uh, carry on from Porter O'Neill. Thank you, Mayor. Good evening, everyone. I'm here just to talk about a few housekeeping items for the Zoom meeting portion of tonight. This meeting is being broadcast and recorded on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. Please remember to mute yourself during the meeting unless, unless you are speaking. The chat function for this public meeting is disabled. Unless you are participating during the meeting, please turn your video off. This allows the active meeting participants to be seen on the screen. You will still be able to hear the meeting. When you are participating in the meeting, please turn your video on. If you have any trouble, you can send me a chat. The city reserves the right to mute people or turn individual videos off to minimize distractions during the meeting. And now I'll turn the meeting back over to Mayor Shipley. Thank you very much. Um, next, we'll have uh, some explanation uh, primarily of how public comment works from Sherry. Thank you, Mayor. When the mayor calls for public comment, individuals attending in person should approach the podium to indicate they wish to speak. The podium can be raised and lowered, and we encourage you to use this feature to ensure your comments are heard. Individuals participating via Zoom should use the raise hand function to indicate they wish to speak. Please leave your virtual hand raised until you are called on. Individuals will be called on in the order they appear on the meeting host screen. Please state, state your name, your name before, before speaking, speaking and all comments will be limited to three minutes. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Sherry. Uh, next, we'll move on to the approval of the agenda. The city commission reserves the right to amend, supplement, or reorder the agenda during the meeting. Uh, do I have any motions to change or to approve? Move to approve the agenda. Second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Uh, that passes five to zero. That brings us next to our consent agenda. All matters listed on the consent agenda are considered under one motion and will be approved by one motion. There will be no separate discussion on those items. If discussion is desired, that item will be removed from the consent agenda and will be considered separately. Members of the public wishing to speak to an item that has been pulled off the consent agenda will be limited to three minutes for comments. Are there any items city commissioners would like to remove? Not seeing any indications. Are there any items members of the public here physically in the room or in the lobby would like to remove from the consent agenda specifically? Not seeing anything. Is there anyone online who would like to remove something from the consent agenda? Please raise your virtual hand. Stephen Watts. Thank you. Is there anyone else online? That's it, Mayor. All right, thank you very much. Um, with that, I will, um, sorry, <laughs> uh, entertain motions. Sorry, <laughs> got distracted. Move to approve the consent agenda with the exception of B1 and B5. Second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Uh, that brings us to B1, Mr. Watts. Hi, thank you. Once again, B1 addresses the minutes. The minutes are inadequate. 
gone on in the meetings. Please. And as I recall, Mayor Shipley, you had requested town staff to explain this. Why? Uh, community was received. Um, I have reviewed some data that came out of the city clerk's office that said we look up for our objective. I mean, a whole bunch of mishmash and this, that, the other. Uh, please, can we please write in there what people are saying? You know what? If they, if we could do it, we, us. If we could do it in the 70s and the 80s and all of this computer equipment and software, uh, people actually wrote it out by hand back then. I don't think it's particularly oppressive to put it into the minutes. Thank you. Thank you. Is, Is there, there any comments? Any comments? Steve, if you had saw the from the uh, from the August sixteenth meeting, um, there was a response, and maybe that's what you're maybe referring to. to. But it was in the city manager's C report on August sixteenth that we had requested, and and that response was there. So, what did it say, Brad? Uh, you can look at it, um, but okay. I think it's um, th some of the things have been said before. But you can take a look at that. I appreciate your input. I'd like to underscore, and I appreciate the time. This isn't a Steve Watts issue. This is a City of Lawrence issue. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Watts. Um, any other questions or comments from commissioners? Uh, any public comment on this item? Thank you, uh, commissioners, public servants. Uh, Jeremy Rothkuschel, Lawrence, Kansas. Um, I very much concur with uh, Mr. Watts and in anticipation, but uh, in relationship to this specific item around the minutes, the further dilution and uh, attempt to try to winnow down the actual impact of we the people public state in terms of the actual, the actual notes of the public record for these meetings now combined with a move to potentially winnow down uh, oral comment uh, uh, being accepted at the city commission is very worrisome. So in terms of the importance of really reopening the full scope of the public record, I would remind the city and the public in this city what happened here almost 10 years ago in relationship to a development project that the city pursued with a now convicted uh, federal felon um, where uh, people from KU, professors from KU were weighing in that the city's legal position was uh, unlawful in terms of the actual printed word of the city, uh, what the city was allowed to do in terms of uh, 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 seeking um, contracts from uh, without any uh, competition. And it's very obvious anyone can go read the, the statute that that decision about Rock Chalk uh, uh, Park was mm -hmm was uh, made upon that the city did violate legally 
um, its own law in order to do that in the way that it was done. Now we know that that convicted uh, felon who this city got in bed with in, basically embezzled tax money from the city. We still don't know the how many millions actually might have been stolen from the city just in that unlawful determination by the city attorney in relationship to the city just giving it straight to this uh, developer. Now, those that written record is there in those minutes from almost 10 years ago of the professor from KU and, P, and P members of the public like me the city commission did not express those things. It was not uh, put in in terms of the uh, what the city commission was worried about. And finally, the, the I was accused at that time of, of being engaged in venomous discourse by the then, I believe, uh, vice mayor, who then also became a convicted felon in terms of uh, corruption in this city. So the I'm very suspicious of the combination of whittling down the actual content, the political public input content of these minutes that just happened the last few years, especially when you combine it with new moves to then further limit, limit public, public input. input. Orally, so I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, everyone. Um, before we move on, I do want to ask you to please refrain from clapping. Unfortunately, that has been a stated rule for many years. I didn't make that one up. Um, and it is a distracting and it is a very civil request that I'm making. So um, is there any other public comment on this item? Steven's been making this point at a number of different meetings and Jeremy adds to the, to the finer points of it in the fact that what's happening in the minutes here as far as our input is not being recorded, what are we gonna find out 10 years from now that was not recorded here that turns out to be true? If you guys shut things down on the minutes, you shut things down on uh, our access, and we see it happening at the other commission that they've decided to stop recording and they don't record accurate minutes. But what are we gonna see 10 years from now that we were telling you about because we've already seen two years hence what I was telling you about. We're not all crazy. And just because you label us as venomous, whatever uh, Jeremy said, you can put that label on us just like they tried to red flag me on the street and try to make me into a crazy person. They could come take my possessions away. You can't do that to a public that's well informed. And this move that you're making today is only because you're seeing the public come together. Is there any further public comment on specifically B1, which to be clear is approving the city commission meeting minutes from 823? There is one online if there's no one else in the room. Is there anyone online? Chris Flowers. Hi, um, this is Chris Flowers. I'd just like to echo those comments before me. Um, Ma'am, I think we need to do start thinking about how we do our minutes like if you're saying like in an upcoming agenda item y'all are saying we have to watch out for youtube's um policies what happens if um a, a past recording gets taken down and there's nothing in the minutes said like people spoke on the issue like how are we supposed to know if youtube takes down the video 
And I mean, because we are relying on YouTube for our videos, like what happens when they take get taken down. Those agenda minutes are what we control as the city. Like we're not relying on a corporation for those. That's what we control. So maybe we need to start thinking about, hey, can we start doing this more thoroughly and better in case a corporation takes down our video? Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else online? That's all the comments. Made. I'm going to bring that back to commissioners. I would say there's a big difference between meeting minutes and transcript of a meeting. Um, we encourage the public to provide not only public comment, but also written comment and written comments are um, placed in the agenda for record. We also have video that is archived for public comments. And so I, you know, I've, whether it's local city commission meetings, there's government meetings, um, federal meetings, ad hoc meetings, organizational meetings on a regional, national, local level, um, the standard practice that our city uses is the standard practice and good practice of all levels of government for meeting minutes. Wanting a transcription of what someone said is a transcription and that is not a, that is not within the scope of meeting minutes. And you know, I hear what the community is saying, but there's a huge difference between meeting minutes and meeting, having the transcription of a meeting. And I don't remember anyone on this commission referencing anyone in the community negatively or venomously. Um, no one's trying to suppress anyone's voice. I'd be the last person to want to suppress someone's voice having lived a life of suppression. But I think it's important that our community understands that there is a difference between meeting minutes and the tra having a transcription of what is said during a, during a meeting, whether it's actual written or it's audiovisual, things of that nature. So um, I, I, I hear from our community, I hear from Mr. Watts, I think there's a big difference as far as what one think something should be and what something actually is and what is good what is good practice. And I do believe our city clerk does a wonderful job of that. And, hey, and we need to recommend and excuse me, sir. Me, excuse me, Mr. Watts, I'm speaking. Please show decorum. Yeah, I was speaking too. It is not your time to speak. So I mean I would I encourage our community to understand the difference of the two. Your commission is not trying to suppress anything from you. We're using good standard practice order, whether it's Robert's rules or any legislative order or just good standard order. That's what we're doing. Um, but we have, good, we have good solid minutes and we have video that reflects that. And anything different, I would say, it, it would be putting us in, 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 a, in a negative light that is not the intention of this commission nor this city. Any other comments from city commissioners? discussion specifically on the minutes then I would entertain a motion these are minutes I don't think we approve minutes oh yeah we do we do, oh, we do. so I moved we approve then I moved we approve the minutes from the August 23rd meeting second, second. I have a first and a second all those in favor aye, aye. aye. that passes five to zero that brings us to B5 Mr. Watts
awful what I just heard from the arrogance of a, my town commission elected officials. All right. This board for the hospital is a critical aspect of our community, which has, you know, it's pretty much left to its own device. I have monitored personally the meetings and I am taken aback at the ignorance of the board members who have not clue one what is actually going on inside our town hospital. It is a community hospital. It is not the Mayo Clinic South or the Cleveland Clinic or Scripps. It's a town hospital. I want to be certain that the people that my town commissioners put on to this board understand the heavy weight placed upon their shoulders to make the decisions necessary to run our hospital. Because what I have been seeing is wealthy people with their connections listening to a $700,000 a year corporate executive in addition to the perquisites that he gets manipulate the board. So please, as you make your choices, who sits on this board, could you please put some regular people on there instead of just rich people? Thank you. Is there any other public comment on this item? Uh, there's no other public comment there. Uh, is there any comment online? No, Mayor. Uh, let's bring it back to the commission. Any comments? I would just say I know Beth and Tamara and Kristen, all great choices, Mayor, and I support um, that and all your appointments um, on this agenda item. So I move to approve the appointments recommended by the mayor. Second. I have a first and a second, but if you don't mind, let me just say one little thing. Um, I, I've, I've been the mayor for about six months and I have spent more time than I can calculate making sure we do not appoint frankly, all white boards, which is something we have rather a lot of. And while I appreciate uh, concern, um, you are welcome to keep your tongue while I'm speaking, sir. While I understand that there's a lot about the board's balance of equity and inclusion that a lot of people don't understand, I do want to say I've spent a lot of time looking into the background of people and making sure that they have something that's not already on those boards. Um, and also checking in with my fellow commissioners to make sure that they don't have someone that I don't know about uh, to make sure that they're um, 
getting their fair chance, regardless of their background or their socioeconomic status. Um, and that's, that's all I'll say about that. I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Passes five to zero. That brings us to our study session. Oh, oh, sorry, public comment. <laughs> Takes me a while. To, that was a big uh, consent. Public comment. The public is allowed to speak on items or issues that are not scheduled for discussion on the agenda. As a general practice, the commission will not discuss or debate these items, nor will the commission make decisions on these items presented during this time. Individuals should address all comments and questions to the commission. Each person will be limited to three minutes. My name is Dr. Justin Spies. I'm running for Douglas County Commissioner in District 1 as a Republican candidate. The seat is currently held by Democratic Socialist Patrick Gottenhoff-Kelly, uh, Gottenhoff-Track-Kelly. Lawrence Times wrote an article yesterday about the proposed censorship ideas this commission will consider here tonight. The article is entitled, Caps and Signups for Public Comments Among Staff Suggestions to Streamline Lawrence City Commission Meetings. Streamline, that's an interesting word choice, Mackenzie Clark, author of the article and founder and editor of the Lawrence Times. Talk about misinformation. Those pesky citizens and their, and their concerns are just getting in the way of their, these elected officials doing their jobs, and so we just remove the uppity citizens from the public square and the meetings altogether. Our poor authoritarian leaders make poor decisions, and then when uh, we the citizens have a problem with those decisions, we exercise our First Amendment right by showing up here to tell our elected leaders to their faces about our thoughts, feelings, and views on these decisions. And what do they do? They end up feeling threatened instead of just taking us seriously and just listening to us. They simply ban us. And the Lawrence Times and LJ World just run cover for these authoritarians. On the surface, Lawrence, you might not have a problem with this because it's being done to silence and censor me and my group. You know the so-called extremists. But Lawrence, when you dig just a fraction below the surface, you'll see that had this rule been in place when Prairie Park Nature Center was on the chopping block, you wouldn't have been able to come in as a group of concerned citizens and let these commissioners know your thoughts and feelings on it, and the center would have been axed, and that's the reality of it. What's going to happen in the future, Lawrence, when they make more bad decisions you don't like and you can't come in to speak your mind? The First Amendment isn't there just for when you have a problem with an issue that is popular, but it's there for everyone, even when you don't agree with them. Now, you can blame me for for this, you can blame me for this happening, that they're doing this because I come in here each week to say what's on my mind and they don't like it so they decided to change the rules and that impacts us all. But that's just victim blaming. I've just been exercising my First Amendment rights like any American would. The real issue is these authoritarians exercising their power to protect their fragile egos and keep themselves in power by hiding in the silence they create by keeping everyone in Lawrence in the dark. If that's the type of community you want to live in, Lawrence, if that's the type of life you want to live, then I say congratulations because that's now what you're going to have. But good luck because you'll never be able to publicly hold these sorry excuses for leaders accountable. Why on earth you'd want that, I have no idea, but again, good luck. Whether you like me or not is irrelevant, Lawrence. This issue should be one that unites all of us despite our political leanings because it can, it can and will impact each of us at some point going forward. If I'm elected to the county commission, I will not support censoring you even if I disagree with you because I know how shitty and wrong it feels to be censored. You ever felt that, Amber Sellers? Probably not. Are we all Americans or not? It's time we start acting like it before, we are, before our taken for granted liberties are gone forever. 
Don't think it'll happen to you. Well, a year ago, I didn't think it would happen to me, but here we are. Finally, Lawrence Times, we have identified a solution to the issue of YouTube removing the commissioner meetings on their platform, and we have spoken to the commissioners about this solution, which they have refused to look into. Why didn't you cover this in your article? Instead, you Thank just you. go straight to getting on board with the local leader censoring your very own readers. Thank you. Why is that? Sounds sus. I want to remind everyone that this is an item we will speak about later, so if you could... Yeah, I want to pick up on where Justin left off there, because uh, we did let the commissioners know that there was a solution to the YouTube issue. All that needs to happen is that... I would like to please stop you, unfortunately. This is something we will speak about later in our agenda item, which is for items we will not be speaking about on our regular agenda. We are very clear about that. Could you wait until we discuss this particular item? You're going to reset I'll my reset time? It, of course. It's for items that are not on the agenda, and that item is on the agenda. YouTube is not on the agenda. It is, in fact, in our discussion later of how we will conduct these meetings. <clears throat> See, it's impressive that this is how we get managed when we come in here to speak as the public. Would you like We're to not speak to the commission? To as the public. It's, is this, this is what we want, right? We want the public to not speak? The commission asks that I maintain a certain kind of order and that we expend the public's time judiciously and that we listen to items that have to do with the agenda when those items are discussed. Very minimum request, which we read every week. We could have already been done, Courtney. Mayor. We will be discussing this item later in the agenda. Is there any public comment that does not have anything to do with regular agenda items? Sure, Courtney. How about we discuss you not putting white people on boards? Go ahead. I'm sorry, guys. I'm going to probably sound like an angry white man, but I really don't vote that way and I don't believe that way. But I do have a problem with somebody saying that they're working real hard to keep white people off of boards. That's a very racist, orientated decision-making process. I also have a problem with a mayor that would text back and forth with the city manager talking about high-fiving police officers for police brutality. Courtney Shipley. Now I'd like to know if there's any other commissioners out there that high-fived the police officers for trying to rap and go knees down on a guy that was compliant. Very important, compliance. The man was compliant, Courtney, and you high-fived them for abusing him. He was indeed white. We could have been done probably two or three minutes ago, but you decided to express this. When you want to appoint people to boards, you need to look for the best qualified candidate. If that may not be a white person, then so be it. But don't come in here to this meeting and say you're working to keep white people off of boards. That is incredibly offensive. And it needs to be noted that just because racism is more predominantly toward minorities, that is a racist attitude. It's a racist utterance. 
And it's no wonder that we have another person in this town named Shipley that would say that it's okay to throw somebody out of restaurants because they don't like their skin color or their sexual orientation. Or if they're homeless. That's a good point. Keep trying to shut us down. We just keep getting louder. When I started coming in here about six months ago, it was just me for three minutes. I called it my three minutes. And if you think your moves are going to shut me down, you're wrong, guys. Every day I grow. And I'm going to need a chair over there because I am a news organization. So we're going to see how fair this county commission wants to work. You've got preferential seating over there for the Lawrence Journal World so that they can write their news reporting. I have a news outlet. I earned ad revenue from that news outlet. Therefore, I qualify as a media source. I'm going to need a desk. And if you think I don't want to push this, shut down some more public comment. Is there further public comment that has not to do with an item on the agenda? Wow, this is pretty good. I would like to have the commissioners refresh their memory about the Constitution. Primarily, Amendment 1, freedom of speech. Amendment 14, which says that all people are created equal. It doesn't matter what your color is. It doesn't matter what your sexual orientation is. We're all Americans. Get over. We all know by now that the tax increase in this town and this county is completely out of sync with the rest of the world. 70% increase since 2002 versus 8% with the rest of the state. This, if this isn't a red flag, we'll never open our eyes. No matter how much lipstick you put on this pig, this is a misuse of public purse, period. We have a shrinking tax base. We've lost 400 jobs last year. And all we talk about is affordable housing, plastic bags, how do we uh, organize a two-car parade. We don't look at the problems. And one of the biggest problems we have, in my opinion, is we're not transparent. That's what these people are saying out here, including me. We don't know what's going on in here. A lot of the times, everything is done undercover and we don't know what's going on. We know that the rock chalk and the farmland industry was a boondoggle that cost the taxpayers millions. If you go 25 miles north, uh, east of here, you see the Legion. When I moved up here 20 years ago, there was basically the Great Wolf Lodge and the racetrack. Now look at it. It's a booming enterprise versus Lawrence. 
we have this attitude that because we're on the east side of the Bay of San Francisco, we're part of San Francisco. That's not true. I'd like to talk just a little bit. Whoops, looks like my time's about up. As an American, an American, and an Army veteran, I'm asking you why you should be allowed to remain in office since you do not support the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of the State of Kansas. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Herring. Thank you for your service. Further public comment? Not on items on our agenda later. Uh, Mayor, city commissioners, public servants, um, Jeremy Rothkuschel. I want to first, um, I want to speak to the fact that the city police department is, as far as I know, still using software that was created by an apartheid foreign regime that has just admitted to having killed a Palestinian-American woman journalist. That's Israel. It's called BriefCam. Now, we've made some progress because of, first of all, in pre-existing um, senior leadership in the police, they already had concerns about using things like facial recognition software, which has been well documented in academies around the country to have a, an intense racial bias, uh, especially against uh, African-American women. And additionally, the privacy con concerns about that. So Mr. Watts, uh, in conjunction with me and with the openness of, uh, of the city manager and the chief of police and uh, deputy chief, have already, the police have added a no facial recognition policy written beyond just an ethos that could go away at any moment to the police uh, manual. Now, we need to follow that up now because the brief cam, which is the software that the Lawrence Police Department continues to use, they tell me for non-human usage, for example, for cars, that there are modules that can be then deployed that could be things like, that might not even be facial recognition, but that could be things like movement. So we need a citywide ban on um, biometric technology. From the top down, we need to do that. We additionally, we're the home, we, we created the internet in this country. We do not need to be uh, outsourcing, especially sensitive uh, issues around race and privacy uh, software to a military uh, intelligence regime mm -hmm. that has wholeheartedly shown itself to maintain a decades-long racially uh, biased uh, occupation mm -hmm. while also uh, assassinating, killing dozens and dozens of journalists. So I, as a, as a Jew and as an American, and as a Jewish American patriot of conscience who is deeply involved in matters of the First Amendment press, not only around local issues, but also about Israel-Palestine, I feel very vulnerable by the fact that my city allows this to continue, that we're outsourcing these really uh, important kinds of things such as how do we track people, how do we track uh, cars to a, uh, a foreign regime that has all of these, this uh, major moral baggage to it. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Further public comment? Hi, my name is Sue Herring. And I'm going to do a little verbal dance around not to get uh, squelched, as you did, Michael. 
because my speech was about something that's coming up on, pub, on uh, your agenda later. But I want to talk to you guys about health. There's a direct correlation between healthy government and healthy communities. A healthy community thrives in freedom from heavy taxation, freedom from censorship, and freedom from government controls. Our city is plastered with the name Free State. Freedom here is our heritage, and it seems that it's being ignored by you. Ignoring this and other symptoms of ill health, deciding to limit input about that, all of you would do better if you continue to listen. It's, a, it's basic common sense. It's something we teach our kids so they can lead more productive lives. It's also common sense to vote out people who govern poorly, who are unhealthy for us. Changing to healthy habits includes electing new people. Clearly, the ill health here and at the county level is obvious to everyone. A healthy choice is to elect Dr. Spees as county commissioner and new people here at the city when that time comes. We need to get this city and county healthy again so that no one is suppressed by not denying public comment at commission meetings. Thank you. Any further comment? Is there anyone online? If there is, could you raise your digital hand? Stephen Watts. Town budget issues, which, you know, it's a daily thing. I realize everybody wants to forget about it, but it's a daily thing. Get the police out of schools, please. That's $600 plus thousand per year that we can save by keeping the police out of schools. Why are they there? What the hell are they doing? I telephoned Mr. Little John. He didn't call me back. I care. I, I've telephoned a couple of other people. They don't telephone you back. It's all good. I understand. Johnny one tune. Anyway, the sign in front of the town swimming pool. That's going to get commemorated here in the next couple of days. Here's the thing. Can somebody please tell me? that the city elected officials who are named in that sign did not discriminate against black people or people of color for the lunch counters. It's a simple question. I've asked it repeatedly. I've also asked who are the volunteers contributing to pay for this sign? I understand $1,000 comes from the town coffers. Where's the other $1,000 coming from? Anyway, I'm all skippy. It's just that we live in a town where segregation was a way of life. People of color did not eat in the restaurants up and down Mass Street. Not until 1968 and past that. Please, could you provide me some assurances that our town is not patting on the back a group of 
white business people who purposely kept people of color out of the town swimming pools. That's all I'm asking. Can you assure me that the names listed from that sign did not participate in denying people of color a seat at the lunch table. Nobody's been able to ask that question. I answer that question rather, and I've asked it repeatedly. I've asked it to you, Ms. Shipley. I sent you some emails. I sent Mr. Littlejohn. I sent Brad an email. It's all good. Hey, it's aloha. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Watts. Chris Flowers. Okay. Hi, this is Chris Flowers. I just wanted to point out that um, recently, well, I, I don't think since I've had a chance to comment on it, that the cops released footage from last July of them uh, arresting a homicide suspect. And in the video, they brought out the dog. And in the past, I was told, I mean, I, it wasn't from city, but I've had citizens tell me that the dogs are just used for drugs. But in the video, you can clearly say, or you can clearly um, hear the cops say to the guy, if you try to run, you'll be bit by the dog. And he has the dog right there. So I just want to point out, so you all know, our dogs are indeed attack dogs and they're not just being used for drugs. Also, um, when we approved the drones um, for the Lawrence police, I think they said one of the reasons we needed them is so we wouldn't have to be borrowing um, drones from like uh, Douglas County Sheriff's. But recently the Douglas County Sheriff put out a tweet that they helped with, um, th they helped the LPD um, with an investigation. I guess they were trying to, to find someone and that they helped with using their drones. So if if they gave the reason that um, we needed to buy them drones so they wouldn't have to use the sheriffs, why are they still using the sheriff's drones? Just something to think about. Thank you. Thank you. Any other comments from online? That's all the comments, Mayor. All right, thank you. Uh, commissioners, any comments or questions? All right, let's move on to the work session. The work session provides an opportunity for the city commission to discuss items in greater detail. The commission will take no binding action on items presented during this time. Work session topics are eligible for live public comment. Each person will be limited to three minutes. I'm not sure which member of staff. Oh, Danelle, is it you? There you are. It is. Good evening, Mayor Commissioners. Uh, my name is Danny Walters. And I'm the division manager for the Housing Initiatives Division. And uh, just a little background on our division. We do have three arms, which includes the federal and state grants, such as the Community Development Block Grant, the Home Partnership Program, and also the Emergency Solutions Grant. Uh, we also handle affordable housing. And then our newest area, which is the uh, Homeless Programs part of our division. And that is what we will be providing an overview for tonight for you. Uh, this program was first presented in the budget talks of 2022, and we were able to bring our staff on board in May of this year. And I don't want to take away from the presenters who are most definitely the subject matter experts here. So I just want to take a moment just to introduce the staff and 
um, and then I'll turn it over to them for the for the presentation. So uh, we have three members for our homeless programs team. Uh, they include Jen Wolsey, who is our program homeless programs coordinator, Cicely Thornton, who is our homeless programs project specialist, and then Mitch Young, who we share with the Parks and Rec Department, um, and he has been the city's houseless liaison for a number of years now. So. Um, uh, I'll now turn it over to Cicely for the beginning of the presentation, and uh, we thank you for your commitment to the work that we are doing here in this space. Hello, everyone. All right. <clears throat> Take it down so you guys can hear me. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I am Cicely. It's nice to meet all of you guys. Um, so good evening, Mayor, Commissioners. My name is Cicely, and our team and I are excited to be presenting this information to you and our community this evening. Our goal is to provide everyone with the information that our team has discovered to be some of the community's biggest needs, focusing around strong, welcoming neighborhoods. So our city's commitment to provide strong and welcoming neighborhoods is defined as all people in Lawrence live in a safe, functional and aesthetically unique neighborhoods that provide opportunities to lead healthy lifestyles and access safe and affordable housing and essential services to help them thrive. So to reach the goals of strong and welcoming neighborhoods, the city has identified a list of pro progress indicators to guide us to success. This evening, our team will be focusing on strong and welcoming neighborhoods, indicator number six, point in time count of people experiencing homelessness. Homelessness and housing are very complex topics with many different layers. In recent years, we have observed a community increase of homelessness as well as across our nation. The increase is due to several ongoing factors, including the current COVID-19 pandemic, increases in cost of living, decreases in emergency sheltering options, significant lack of affordable housing, and underfunding for critical needs such as mental and medical health programs for those without in adequate insurance. Sorry, I'm so short. <laughs> Our community's goals should be providing a diverse, equitable housing stock 
where all community members can access a safe, secure, and permanent home at affordable cost. While working to develop this housing stock, emergency shelters are needed and must be part of the continuum to reach a functional zero. This evening, we will be focusing on two distinct barriers which exist within our community and policies our team is seeking guidance on. The first focus being the inadequate data tool known as the point in time count that is currently being used to determine our community's number of individuals experiencing homelessness. Our second will cover the community's lack of adequate, dignified emergency sheltering options. The way we view, interact, and respond to homelessness requires a whole community change. Throughout history, homelessness has been understood more as a monolithic issue instead of a holistic issue. Monolithic would deem the group of unified and without diversity, allowing ideology that the concerns could be alleviated with a single solution. Whereas the holistic approach allows for individualized concerns and highlighting the big picture. The growing amount of research on homelessness response and prevention focuses on complexities around causes, experiences, and impacts of homelessness. To ensure current best practices are utilized, we must be unified as a community and call for a broad holistic change amongst us all. This will allow for the systems to be changed on all layers. Holistic approaches would continue improving service coordination and the accompanying data infrastructure to help the community understand and respond to homelessness. Communities that have put these ideas into action have done so by coordinated access systems, by names list, data management, and community use of the homeless management system. We refer to it as HMIS. Evidence-supported program models such as harm reduction, housing first, built for zero, and permanent supportive housing programs have also emerged as leading interventions to address chronic homelessness with promising results of success. Part of the reaching success will, will require communities and governments to better understand and accept these shifts in ideas and systems so we can move away from the crisis response to rights-based homelessness prevention and sustained exits from homelessness. This slide within our current strategic plan presents a five-year rolling average with a target goal of less than or equal to 250. This goal was developed using the point in time count. The point in time count is a measurement tool used to identify the number, of dem the number and demographics of individuals experiencing homelessness at any in any given year throughout Douglas County. Though the annual HUD point in time count is still conducted in every community receiving HUD funding, most communities no longer utilize this count as an adequate measurement tool to direct their strategic plans around development and programs and services to decrease and end homelessness. Sorry. Point in time count of unsheltered homelessness are likely a significant underestimate of the actual number. This is because this count provides just a quick blurry snapshot of the issue when what we need to reach zero is a full video of the problem. In 2022, Douglas County's point in time count reported 81 unsheltered. Our team can securely state that this number is crucially inaccurate. 
In the last three months, our team has identified and personally met over 148 individuals experiencing unsheltered homelessness in the city of Lawrence alone. We also know there are many we have yet to make contact with. We received a number, this number by personally reaching out, speaking with, and learning the names of our fellow neighbors sleeping on the streets, in the parks, in the woods, in their vehicles, and throughout Lawrence. I would ask when we move through these next slides, we focus less on the messiness of these pictures, but instead recognize that these are the places many of our Lawrence community members call home. Not because they want to, but because they have no other choices. All these individuals have names, stories, hopes, dreams, aspirations, and most importantly, potential. From July 15th to present, our division, along with the Parks and Rec Division, have received more than 50, actually 60, I think is our last count, community complaints around camping. This has resulted in nine camp cleanups and notices to vacate being issued within the last 30 days. So what is the better solution? it up I'm sorry why does it keep doing that? sorry y'all we're having a little technical <laughs> issues with our with our video today this is mine okay go ahead and exit out this escape Okay, so I would now like to share the following video from Community Solutions, built for zero to ex better explain why point in time counts matter. We need to share the sound. Sorry, Porter. Okay, I'm gonna finish this. <laughs> Built for Zero to better explain why point in time counts are no longer the best tool. We should be more focused on implementing a by name list to collect data and develop a holistic system of care. Where's the video? Here. Right there. Okay, but it has to be shared. Thank you. Ah, I appreciate your help. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. All right, let's start it over. Communities are proving it is possible to solve homelessness. Working toward a future where homelessness is rare overall and brief when it occurs. 
They are designing systems that can continuously reduce the number of people experiencing homelessness in a population and make sure that number stays low over time. One of the most important solutions to ending homelessness begins with seeing it. Historically, communities have relied heavily on point-in-time counts, a count conducted on one night every year to understand whether the problem of homelessness is improving. They've used this number to develop strategies and make budget decisions. But the count is just that, an estimate from a moment in time. There are no names behind it, no way to know how that number has changed over time, no way to know what that number is today. Homelessness is a problem that changes every night. To keep up with it, we need a clear video, not a blurry snapshot. Communities are catalyzing progress by shifting to by-name data, a comprehensive profile of every person in a community experiencing homelessness, updated in real time so no one is left behind. All agencies and programs share data in a single place, which includes people in temporary accommodations and people on the streets. Using information collected and shared with their consent, each person has a comprehensive profile that includes their name, homeless history, health, and housing needs. This data is updated monthly at minimum. So how exactly is that helping communities end homelessness? At the individual level, a shared understanding of every person experiencing homelessness in real time changes everything. People move from being a single organization's client to the entire community's client. Leaders can come together around this list, working together to connect people to the support they need. Understanding homelessness in terms of population-level dynamics is critical to knowing how and where to improve systems. How many people became homeless for the first time this month? How many were people returning to homelessness? How many people exited from homelessness? Are the experiences of people moving through the system equitable? Without this information, communities can get stuck in a cycle of solving yesterday's problem without knowing if they're moving closer to their goal. But with this data, communities can implement strategies that are as dynamic as the problem. A commitment to data is more than a commitment to numbers. It's about being accountable to everyone experiencing homelessness and to getting to zero. Communities are proving that solving homelessness starts with seeing the dynamic problem of homelessness at any given moment for all the people impacted by it and using that information to end it for good. Thank you. I'm technically challenged, I think. just goes away after 14 or after 13. It's so weird. Okay. Are you sharing this? Mm-mm. 
for you. But then it goes back to the beginning. Oh, perfect. Look, you can, you're awesome. Thank you. As previously mentioned, there needs to be high-functioning, holistic system of care to ensure we have all the components in place to successfully reach a functional zero. These are the components which are currently lacking in our community to reach this goal. As presented in the KU Homeless Needs Assessment, we need every organization who is serving or in contact with our homeless population to have access to and be entering data into our community's HMIS and coordinated entry by name list. This will require an expansion of our homeless management information system and an additional staff member with the Kansas Statewide Homeless Coalition to be hired solely for Douglas County to support this expansion and additional data input. In the meantime, the city and county have combined efforts to develop a GIS mapping system. Our team and other community outreach providers will work together in locating all individuals experiencing unsheltered homelessness. While constructing the system, we will also be collecting demographics on these individuals to then be able to feed it into, into our support list, which will then be uploaded into HMIS once it becomes fully capable. We need, to direct, we need direct street outreach workers whose roles will be working directly on the street and in the encampments to identify, engage, and connect unsheltered individuals to basic needs, vital docs, system intakes, VISPADATS, coordinated entry by name list, and then ultimately permanent housing. So this evening there was a s'more um, s'more, which is what we call street out for the street outreach from us in the county. That should have been on the agenda for this evening. We need additional approved emergency sheltering options for people to access and to end the cycle of continually asking homeless individuals to pack up and relocate. Research has shown this type of displacement does not support the goal of decreasing homelessness, but instead actually causes, causes an increase for the length of time an individual remains homeless. Staff is currently exploring solutions around the needs for family emergency sheltering and additional single adult sheltering options. Okay, now it is Jen's turn. She is the Housing Initiatives Division Program Coordinator. And I'm gonna let her take over. Thank you guys. Thank you. I'm gonna try to, as y'all can tell, if you haven't noticed, I am somewhat the tall one or taller one. So good evening, Mayor and Commissioners. I'm Jen. Um, a lot of people know me as the purple-haired girl. Um, so as um, Cicely discussed, we are kind of in need of some stuff that we have as far as gaps in our community. Um, one thing that we are looking at, some considerations for today, did that go off? Um, come here, Cecily. Let me try, y'all. I might have to wing it. 
do we think? Yes. Okay. Hang so. Um, oh, there you go. It is sharing. Okay. Sorry. Go okay. No problem. Thank you, Al. Um, we spend more time on the streets, I think, here lately, so I apologize. Um, so staff has been actively researching other communities who are having success in operating long-term managed encampment programs for their houseless population. Staff will work to identify potential ways that a managed encampment program could work in Lawrence and will be returning to the City Commission for direction regarding feasibility of a long-term site, possible locations, and operational recommendations. HID, which is our team, will be requesting support from the City Commission and City Leaderships in the latitude to expedite resource, or expedite, expedite, I can talk today, resources, and to examine those barriers that exist that make it challenging to move forward with a program such as a managed encampment. And I actually wanted to go here. Um, another thing that we are trying to look at is also long-term considerations. Um, so considerations of current operations and codes must occur to better provide a balance between those experiencing homelessness, public parks, all open spaces for the benefit and public parks for for all of everyone to benefit from them, I'm sorry. The HID and our partners in the city and the community will undertake a comprehensive review of the various codes and regulations that impact our community members experiencing homelessness, while also understanding that there are multiple community values and expectations in play. Our team is requesting support from the city commission and city leadership in creating a balanced response using holistic systems management. As Cicely mentioned, homelessness is a complex issue which will require broad holistic change amongst us all. To reach functional zero, our community will need to continue working together and providing the wraparound services needed to meet the complexity of all these needs. Thank you for your time and our team is prepared to answer questions. Thank you, are there any questions for commissioners? Actually, I did have a question, if, if that's okay. Um, let's see, it was Cicely, Cicely? You had mentioned about the HMIS. Yeah, are you, are you working in conjunction with the health department on that? Because I know they've been working on that, a similar system, system for many years. So are you in collaboration with them on that? So we are in the process of bringing them in. This is a pretty new um, program that we are trying to do due to the, so we actually work with the homeless management information system. So I do not believe that the health department is currently collaborating in that system, but they are also doing a similar GIS mapping system. So that's where we will be meeting with them and collaborating um, to see who they have made contact with mm -hmm. so that we're making sure that those list are combined. Um, what that will ultimately look like, we'll have to see just because we do have to look at um, like private information and things like that. But we are working, we, are, we will be partnering with them to look at what they've already got. Thank you, I think that's real important. Thank you. Yes. Um, 
I had a quick question as well. Um, in terms of the uh, encampment, uh, I think I saw it as well earlier, but I just wanted to make sure. Well, a lot of the same players involved in, I see Mitch here, in, in terms of Woody Park, be uh, be there to go ahead and assist that as well. Because um, I know that in doing that, we we purchased a lot of equipment that was very useful in terms of the portable showers and things of that sort. Um, and I'm hoping that we can kind of repurpose those for this, this process as well. Most definitely. So um, I will say that um, without getting too much into the weeds that we are talking about a temporary kind of campsite area and then talking about more of the long term so that what we just discussed was the long term and definitely we will repurpose the plan is to repurpose all of those things um, and follow kind of some of the same systems that were used at Woody um, I think that in with our new positions we bring some different experience that will help add to that programming Nice to meet both of you. Thank you. Seen on, seen your name on a few things, but uh, first time we've got to meet. Uh, a couple questions. I know the counties. I, I know with our build for zero, we have a by name list we're working on. Mm -hmm. Is are they using HMIS at that at this time? They are, and so again, this is a complex issue, and yes. I can get in the weeds, so I have to be concise as possible. So ultimately, our HMIS system is our actual data system that we put the information in that system is what feeds into um, the coordinated entry, which ultimately feeds into the by name list. And so why we're having kind of the struggle is just because, as Cicely mentioned, we because there is limitations on which providers here in town can access that HMIS, there's a lot of services that are being provided to this population that we're not being able to really calculate, which means we're missing people. So that's why we're looking at doing the GIS mapping at the same time in, in correlation with it, with hopes that once that HMIS is where we need it to be, we can then feed that information. Okay, so it's not that we're not, we don't have a by names list at the moment, we just don't have a comprehensive one yet. Absolutely, Okay, that's, that's exactly it. Um, and out of curiosity, if you know how many are on the by names list now, you know, I know it changes every day or every week, but compared to our, you know, point in time count, you pointed out the difference and I know there is one. So, and, and I will say that our by name list is um, needing some updated on some data. We are, the county and our team is working, a lot of partners are actually working, but I do believe we sat about 199, but again, that may have included duplications, and I will securely say that that also included people that have not been added to that list. Sure, sure. Um, let's see, I was going to ask you. I have comments, so I'm trying to separate my comments from my questions. Um, as we're working on these, um, you know, solutions for emergency sheltering, obviously we're going to be working on some long-term. I mean, obviously, getting housing first is the goal. Um, I mean, how are we working on coming up with these um, kind of temporary solutions? Are you working with with people homeless now that you're out there talking with the providers? What's kind of our process here? Most definitely. So we're trying to do a combined approach. Um, I will, I will always say that um, those that are experiencing homelessness have the solutions. They just need us to come alongside them and help support them with those solutions. So we are definitely working directly in the camps. Um, 
I will say that Cicely and my job in the last several months have been a lot of directly in the camps because that's where we feel like it's, like I said, that's where the solutions are. In addition to that, we have created a work group that our team has created a work group through the community that includes um, as many voices as we can get heard. So we include um, invitations to housed members, unhoused members, um, also <coughs> community, um, different community, I will say city leadership, also county leadership. We have business owners that have been invited to that group, and then we have advocates. So this is a time where we meet, um, and we also have law enforcement. So we meet once every two weeks, yeah, so twice a month, and we all come together around these topics to try to come up with consensus, like a consensus resolution. Obviously, you can imagine that these conversations can get a little hairy at times, but ultimately the goal is, is that we all come together because as we stated, this is a community issue and will require community solutions. Thank you. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, Cicely. Just have a quick uh, couple of questions. Thank you for the presentation. Um, in regards to, not to get you too far into the weeds because that's where I like to live, <laughs> we'll talk later after this in regards to the HMIS, the by name count, and whatnot. So I don't want to get into like APIs and, and how are we feeding in and things of that nature, but I would like to have some additional information about that. But in the interest of time, as we transition, as we're trying to get providers and organizations on board to use the HMIS to get that more accurate point in time count, does the HMIS system platform, does it, are you able to look into their, look into that system so that individuals who are experiencing homelessness, you're able to track and see where they are receiving services, where they've received services, so that we, you're then able to be able to, so then you're able to see maybe how to diagnose optional you know, ways to, to direct them in different ways. So I guess, are you able to see information in there as far as social services served? Absolutely, and so this is a database that most, um, that we really primarily need the human service providers all to be able to have access into, and so they're all set up with different programs, but each individual that is experiencing homelessness is actually entered into the system, they're provided a dashboard, and then as they have contact with different agencies, those agencies actually go into that system, They identify that individual, they pull them up, and then they add them to the services. So why this is so helpful is that as we look at our coordinated entry list, which is all around prioritized housing, and we say, hey, this individual would be a good fit based upon their level of care and their needs and their vulnerabilities to this program right here. Because this is a very transient population, we need to be able to make sure we can find them, right? And so um, that's where we then can dig into that system and say, you know, this individual was at Catholic Charities two days ago. Philip from Catholic Charities, if you see this individual, can you please make sure they're getting connected? Because I will say that unfortunately a lot of our um, folks that would like, I call them our lived experts, right? Our lived experts do miss out on housing opportunities and different resources because we do lose track of them. So this will also assist us in helping us um, maintain that contact with them. Thank you. So high level, you talked about wanting to utilize a holistic systems management approach to this. And you spoke, um, you spoke on the consent agenda item in regards to the um, continual care NOFO. High level, can you explain how that work will marry in and integrate to this? Will it work alongside it? Is this 
funding opportunity that will dig into this work or what does it look? Cause you talked about SMORE, which is part of that piece. So how does that dovetail into to some of the HMIS work, some of this holistic management uh, Definitely. Holistic systems work? So the SMORE team, it actually stands for um, Street Multi-Agency Response and Engagement Team. Um, I don't know if I can repeat that, but anyways, it's called SMORE. And so we, um, we identify that we have definitely different individuals who work have a work role of being out in the streets but unfortunately you know there's a lot of individuals that are currently unsheltered and so primarily this SMORE team will be individuals who are directly providing that engagement out in the streets and an important component of that is they're providing the engagement to basic needs and the care coordination they're not going to be responsible for the case management and so what we're seeing with some of the other outreach responses that we do currently have in the community is they do have a responsibility for case management. So, and that can get very extensive when you add, you know, working with individuals with high barriers and high needs. So again, we really wanna make sure that this team is out there and this team are the individuals that when we say, hey, so-and-so is ready for housing or they need this, that that individual can immediately identify where they're at so we can go make contact with them. So the SMORE will serve as kind of that acute triage and then they will then feed into the more continuous long-term. Yep. Exactly. Okay. So where your FISPADATs happen. Yeah, where your like housing your initial, assessments. Your okay, so then will all of these then feed, I, I know these speak to indicators, and I know in several conversations we've had around work sessions with safe and welcoming communities, safe and welcoming neighborhoods, we've talked about the need for a housing plan and housing strategies and how the homelessness piece, as, spat, as expansive as it is, and we're just speaking to one particular subpopulation within the greater population of homelessness to speak to those strategies of implementation. Are, do you feel that, are you, in, this, in the slide that you have here on 16 about the needs, are these part of strategies to addressing your, these are your homelessness strategies as it relates to building out these indicators or? or what? Most definitely. I will say that um, where we are at, we're in a situation right now because we do have limited shelter. Most of our individuals experiencing homelessness are unsheltered and are out on the streets. So this will definitely be a team that I feel like will be able to make those contacts. And most importantly, as um, Cicely talked, they would they would be doing the VI SPADATS, which is the assessment that needs to get them on the coordinated entry list to even get them into the door, um, or I should say the pathway to housing. So that's, I don't, you know, I will say that right now this is a, the money that we're looking at is a three-year program. My hope is, it's a three-year grant. My hope is that three years we don't need it anymore and we don't have to continue it and we can look at focusing that money somewhere else. But right now, being out on the streets is where really most, where we need to be. I guess just one more follow-up question. Um, because I know, so you talked about we have the possibly a temporary encampment that's being worked on, followed by the winter shelter, followed by a possible long-term encampment. Can you just kind of talk through what your process is or what you guys are suggesting? Definitely. So again, as we mentioned, most of our individuals right now that are experiencing homelessness are unsheltered. So they're living in different parts of Lawrence. Um, I will say they're throughout Douglas County, but primarily in Lawrence. So that's what we're focusing on. The idea would be the temporary um, 
campsite, that space um, that will allow for individuals to have a place to go. Um, so we, a lot of times what happens is when we do come in contact with someone and we do have to ask them to leave a certain area, um, all we're left with is, call, is calling the current shelters. And they're doing an amazing job. They really are. But as you've, we've, I know you've heard from them, like they can't fit the whole role. They can't take on all the responsibility of the number that we're seeing. And so then we're left with the question of where do people go? And so the temporary encampment is looking, or campsite I should say, is looking at, as a place to say, hey, we've got an opportunity for a place for you to go. And also it prevents some of that displacement that we kind of talked about that does lengthen the time of someone experiencing homelessness. So to allow that area, um, it's also a place that providers can go. And they, they're not trying to like, hunt all over town because again, where someone may be tonight, they may have been asked to move and they've had to go to a total different location. And if this is a population that doesn't have transportation and doesn't have a phone, which most of the time it is, then they can't even reach out to that provider and then we lose that motivation and that traction that they've already gained. So again, we're looking at the temporary and then the idea will be that we will move into the winter shelter December 1st um, the winter shelter will be opened for all of December, every night, December, January, February. Will The plan is to close on March 1st. 12. That, I'm sorry. 12. March 12th, excuse me, <laughs> correction. No, um, this is how we work, so March 12th. Um, and so again, that idea is, is that sometimes we have bad weather into March, but at this point we are calculating 75 beds. So. As we just previously mentioned, we were at 148. That was when we originally made this presentation. I would probably say that we are now closer to about that 160 number that we've met because we're actively, again, every day one of us are out on the streets. And so if you look at that, 75 is not gonna be enough. So the idea will be that we will Though this area is temporary, we may have to continue to manage and operate it through the winter season as a place for someone to go. And then the idea is that during this time, this team will need to have permission to um, work on building that long-term solution. And again, we don't use the word permanent because homelessness should never be permanent and shelters should never be permanent. So again, we're going to we're going to start looking into that long term with a, with a hefty goal of March 12th. Um, we'll see if we get there. Thank you. Um, I'm just to pop in, in, in addition to Commissioner Finkeldice. Um, so just a tentative deadline for that. You know, I know you guys are also going out and scouting other communities for what their solutions are. When would, when would you bring that information back? Granted, I know this is way down the line, but I'm just kind of... So, um, I don't have a set timeline. Like I said, I'm looking at that March. I mean, right now, um, some of that other consideration that we have into play is just some of the other, you know, like governing items that, that limit us. And so we, we do definitely have to work through zoning and things like that. So it's really hard to determine a set time frame. I have a lofty goal of, like I said, March 12th, but um, it will also be very dependent on when we come to you around some other requests with zoning and things like that. This is Danny Walters. I, I can say we are working on that in parallel with working on the short term. So our our hope would be to get a lot of those um, those pieces together and start going through approval processes and bringing things to you honestly as soon as we can 
as we can start doing that because March 12th is is definitely that date that, that we're targeting. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I believe that um, there's some camps that start in the community building on the 13th, which will make it um, not able to uh, to continue the winter shelter in that facility. So um, we are we are working. We have been working on it. So um, we will we will have that to you just as, as soon as we possibly have some some longer term solutions to present. Hi, Danny. It's always fun when people get to butt in. Go ahead. Excuse me, sir. Yes. Was there another question? No. Um, thank you, Danny. I appreciate that. Any other questions? Yeah, there, you had some discussion points. Let's uh, make sure there's no public comment in the room on this item. I, <clears throat> my name's Atakpa. Um, just a few comments. Uh, gathering data does not build trust within communities. I'm hearing a lot of talk about abstract solutions when we haven't addressed the cause of houselessness. I've lived here in Lawrence since I was 15. I've lived here seven years. I am black, poor, queer, and disabled, and susceptible to discrimination of all varieties, particularly with regards to housing <coughs> and eviction. Um, as a result of the pandemic and many other factors, we're in a recession. And I think it's very hopeful and naive to believe that the number of houseless people will decrease when there's an increase in evictions. And as far as I know, no protections on raising rent and things of that nature. Yeah. and. Uh, Collecting data and surveilling people again does not address the real cause of houselessness, nor the fact that it may increase. Um, so I'm just interested to know um, <laughs> what the thinking is around focusing on data collection as opposed to um, protections that prevent houselessness for people like me um, and other members of my community and your community. Uh, would be, and um, well, I've got a minute and a half. I'd like to just stand here. <laughs> the number is very inaccurate. That point in time doesn't do anything. And it doesn't really consider like all the different types of houselessness that can occur. Maybe what we should be doing is talking about housing insecurity and use that as a word and definition as opposed to the HUD's definition, because you can't get a call back from HUD. It takes years and years to get into affordable housing in that respect. Um, yeah, and a lot more people are housing insecure than they are formally houseless. So we should take that into consideration. Earlier tonight, development was talked about, and I'll reiterate that we need protections for renters. No rent increase. <laughs> We're in a recession. 
and a pandemic. Also, we're in a pandemic and nobody in here is masked, which is, you know, like a personal thing. But I will bring up that monkeypox is coming. And I've called the health department and Heartland and, you know, all the people and they don't really have a response. And um, that's going to impact houseless people and the families and people who will become houseless as a result of the recession and there being no eviction protections. I'm also young and adults seem to not be able to get to the point. <laughs> I think even though we have opposing viewpoints, we're all concerned about transparency, just talking about like the people at the very beginning who I don't agree with, but I do agree that we need to be transparent and thanks for the mic. Thank you. Hi, my name is Sarah Hill Nelson, and I um, am here seeking public comment on this issue. I work uh, at the Bowersock Mills and Power Company, so I work down on the river, and um, my staff and I were there just about every single day. I mean, we're there basically every day. And so we really have had a lot of exposure to all the different homeless um, and houseless encampments. And so I'm here today to really speak in support of what um, Jen just proposed, Jen and Cicely, because um, although I acknowledge that originally I was a little bit um, taken aback when we did the Woody Park, I've really changed my opinion on that, and I can really see a, a real and very serious need for a safe place for our unhoused community to be able to be where they can receive the services they need, where they can live in a humane environment. And what I've experienced down on the river over the last several years has been really um, just, it's inhumane for the people that are having to live in that situation. Um, the lack of sanitary facilities, the environmental impact that's happening on the river, the our existing houseless population that um, feels really unsafe. You know, I, I've known quite a few people down on the river for years that have been unhoused and they've come to me and said, you know, Sarah, this has been really difficult. Like, we don't feel safe, we need a safe place to go. And so as a, a person that lives and works down there a lot and, and um, is a business owner, I just want to speak out and say the business, me at least, from the business community would really support the concept of having a long-term encampment where people can go be safe, get the showers that they need, you know, the Woody Park type facilities, have, you know, trash facilities, water, a place where they can feel safe. So. Um, I do know that in the, I've heard this suggestion of having the, temp, the original temporary solution behind uh, Johnny's. I do have a little bit of a concern for the long-term potential for that because that is like a flood, I mean, it's like a swamp, right? So when it rains, like I really worry about how that's gonna impact the people that are camping there. So I, I really support what Jen and Cicely are doing and, and would ask that the county and the city really work closely together to identify places that would be appropriate for, and, and big enough and safe enough and out of the floodplain where they can get the facilities that they need. And yes, that probably will require some kind of zoning work. So one thing to consider might be to declare a temporary housing emergency where we could make a, um, 
you know, we, we could facilitate some zoning changes that would allow for a, a long-term encampment. Because, um, for example, the industrial zoned areas don't allow Fine. for that right now. So um, I appreciate everything they're doing, and thanks for your attention. And as a business owner, I'll support um, whatever the city needs to do to be able to make the situation more humane for everyone. Thanks. Thank you. Any other public comment? We've seen the city collect data, and it really comes down to the decisions that you guys make and that city staff make. You can collect all the data that you want, but it's not going to change unless the decision-making is there. Now, the ideas that were presented are awesome. A permanent type of a place. We don't like to use the word permanent, but there's an easy way to find the money for this. And it's real easy because if you establish something like this that's a safe place to go for the homeless people, what are you going to see less of? Trespassing complaints on Mass Street? Less fights in the parks? So I say that we could probably fund this by reducing the police budget. Maybe $100,000, $150,000 out of the police budget to establish some services for some people. That would be a self and, uh, safe and welcoming neighborhood aspect. But are we going to once again allow safe and secure to outweigh our welcoming neighborhoods? Because that's what we tend to do. We tend to worry that we're not safe enough. So we've got to keep the dangerous people away from us. How do people become dangerous? Because they put, get put in untenable situations. So take a little money from the police and let's help some people out for real. been a citizen and a part of this community my whole life it'll be 37 years years come this November there was a once upon a time you could feel safe I did feel safe that is long since past there is as far as police are concerned in the more vulnerable areas of like the encampments there is no police presence outside of serving warrants you got, there, there is a real, real issue that is real, real dark, and that, that, that being like human trafficking or the sex crimes that take place constantly. In the past 17, 18 months, I think I'm sure it's about nine people that I personally know, and that's, that's just what I see, you know, that have went missing. I've only been able to establish life out of three of them all of which have suffered horrible traumas. A safe place? Yeah, that would be awesome. That would be great. You know, identifying the things that are, that are affecting the community, like um, in the long term, we don't have a situation like uh, drug usage and needles. That is spread throughout uh, along the rivers. If it floods, it will. That's going to carry downstream. A child can ruin their life just by falling on the ground and getting hit with a needle that was used 
three, four times ago. Loaded, not loaded, it won't matter. You know, it'll ruin them. I don't see police down there like that helping anybody. Fire department, medical, yeah, when they're called. These, the, the safe place that you're talking about this, uh, this um, that's being brought up, I highly doubt it would take $600,000 to do that. You know, so there would be police in schools because you know, the world is all crazy and people are shooting up schools. I do think that there needs to be a presence there, but your, the, the misuse of funds and clearly neglectful leadership a safe place would be nice. Thank you. Hi, my name's uh, Evan Holt, and uh, I spent 21 years in the Marine Corps. Uh, in that service, I uh, did three years overseas in uh, Japan where we did uh, humanitarian assistance disaster relief missions across the whole Asia-Pacific area. First thing that we do when we conduct these is uh, we bring everyone together. And it's called the cluster system. I'm going to send you guys some emails and I'd like to talk to you. I'm just getting kind of involved with this because I feel like we're really behind the curve on this. And I really like what you're talking about there with getting it by the names. We, you, you have to know the names. You have to know who you're dealing with what services they've had, what services they need, what they need for housing, and also who well and how well do they play with others, you know? And so I really like this system, and it also needs to be coordinated. And so the first thing we do is we bring the cluster together, and what you do is you stand up a, stand up a command center where you have liaison officers or liaison people amongst all the different services there. So uh, like Rebecca from Tenants to Homeowners, she has someone there that's talking with the people from the, the housing. And so that you have all the people talking across so that they can communicate and coordinate and you can actually have some focus. I think what we've seen here is we're confusing action with accomplishment. I, I know there's a lot of action going on, but I just don't see us getting there. I am in a huge supporter of having camps, one, two, or three, whatever, because you need to have a channeling mechanism. You channel them into where you have services, or you channel them around the services that you have because it's an efficient use of resources. And so I, I'm a huge supporter of getting this and getting people from the, uh, the uh, Lawrence Memorial Hospital so that you have a liaison person there that can look at the daily schedule or look at the weekly one cross-check it with theirs to see if any of these people that are in it has been in their services and then they can scrub it for the HIPAA and then take that out of there and then they can have weekly meetings or whatever so that that information doesn't sit in that stovepipe or that stovepipe or that stovepipe. By having a holistic you know, approach to this, I think you can really, really get a lot better gains with not a whole lot more resources they're just focused better. There needs to be leadership over the top of it so that we can, when we need additional resources or we need additional stuff, that we have the commitment to do that. And so, thank you.
Uh, my name is Howard Callahan, and I'm a case manager on the homeless outreach team for Burt Nash for two years and change now. I worked at LCS for roughly six years and have been doing advocacy regarding homelessness for about 20 years now. I was born in Lawrence and I'm a KU alumnus. I'm speaking now not as a representative of either of those agencies, but on behalf of frontline workers and the unsheltered population. I'm writing with this with regards to the most recent discussion regarding city policy in relation to homeless people camping in city parks. I have witnessed firsthand the combination of factors that have culminated in the current situation of homeless camping. I was also present when homelessness entered the focus of city discussion back in 2005, and then again in 2010, when an OD an established camp in the woods behind Amtrak led to that camp being demolished and displaced. Currently, the housing resources and shelter resources are at an all-time low. Our outreach <clears throat> on-call line is swamped regularly with people seeking shelter, families about to lose shelter, people fleeing domestic violence, and we have to tell them there is no emergency shelter option. We offer them a tent purchased with direct assistance funds, and they ask us, where can we camp? And the answer is a lot of talking around the fact that the city can't make up its mind. First it was the CD district, then Nope City Park areas, but not on the mode parts as long as no one complains. Um, parks and rec staff have been as forgiving as they can until somebody complains, and then they get post a posting notice with our number and LCS's number, despite the fact that neither organization has an immediate shelter option for them. I've been in meetings where this is discussed. Um, what has the legal staff said about these practices? What has the new city homeless staff said about these practices? Is city management listening to the outcome of the meetings being held? Because from where I, from where I was sitting in those meetings, they've been very clear. Lawrence's standing practice of shuffling people around on a complaint basis is ineffective, unethical, cruel, and likely illegal. This is consistent with my understanding and, direct, and experience from directly engaging with these issues for my entire adult life and professionally for the better part of the last decade. Um, wh what it does is make the homeless population more dug into homelessness, more insecure, trust the community and its programs less, and waste tons of man hours. And the only thing it accomplishes is making some of the homeless problems somewhat less visible for a short period of time. It is also the exact same kind of passive-aggressive policymaking that happened in 2005 and 2010, with the predictable outcome of making providing services and housing harder and making, homeless, making the homeless population's lives harder. This pattern of polite, reactionary cruelty is normal at this point. I say this as someone who has been front and center at trying to manage the impact of it for nearly a decade. I have clear memory of the worker who held the exact position I'm holding now, writing an extensive letter making many of the same points that Jen, Jen and Cicely had made back in 2010. The city ignored him and displaced the camp. I'm tired of mollifying their outrage. I'm tired of getting mollifying answers when I bring this stuff up to the musical chairs game of administrative staff that have endless meetings about how we're gonna juggle the maybe 20% of what's needed in terms of resources we've allocated as a community while we shuffle, shuffle the campers around some more. This is not to disparage any of the admin staff or of any of our nonprofits. Just like the frontline providers, they have been normalized to trying to do too much with too little. My understanding is that the recommendation of best practices is as follows. More workers, more permanent supportive housing programs, allocate, allocate adequate shelter services, more data collection, stop shuffling people around and give these things time to work, not until someone complains. 
as one of the workers who has administrated the last two pit counts, who is directly involved with the implementation of HMIS and service provision for the unsheltered population, I will say Jen and Cicely were the right choice for the positions that they are in. The question now is whether or not you listen deeply to what they are telling you. My only caveat would be that I think we need multiple sanctioned camps so that people who are in conflict or fleeing domestic violence have an option aside from camping potentially with their abuser. Thank you. Thank you, Howard. Good evening, my name is Clavin Snow. I've been a Lawrence resident for 24 years. Uh, I own a home on Elm Street in North Lawrence, um, right there by the river trails. Um, and I love my neighborhood and have a genuine affection uh, for my fellow sand rats. I would like to thank uh, Jen and Cicely and Danny all for their service. Um, I know that uh, several of my neighbors have some concerns and disagreements and don't want this uh, to come. Uh, and it, I could stand here and quote Isaiah 10 or James, the fifth chapter, but you know, we're a community of widely varied beliefs and um, we'll all live by those codes. Uh, I, I disagree with my neighbors who don't want this. Um, I, I wanna say I live in the area that will be direct, most directly affected. And uh, I do hear, uh, people live there already. Um, people live there in, in uh, the woods, in the, in, in the heat, in the, um, and uh, are pretty much left to their own devices. Um, and I'll just address the most practical concerns, you know. I mean, if you don't want excrement in the woods, provide some toilets. If you don't want, uh, if you don't want, uh, people dying of heat stroke, you know, provide shade and water. If you don't want people freezing to death, provide heat. If you don't want people building fires in the woods for heat, which is a basic human need for survival, provide some heat. Um, and uh, I would just like to, I, I feel it's important to make my voice known as someone who's going to live right there. Um, I agree with the gentlemen who say, you know, you provide, you provide a place for uh, people experiencing homelessness to be, and what are you gonna get less of? You're gonna get less people experiencing homelessness. And uh, so, uh, I haven't spent much of my time, and I won't spend much of yours, um, but I just, I just um, feel it was import important, because I know several people in my community, my, my neighborhood of North Lawrence, pardon me, are against this. I just wanna say, I live right there, I plan to stay in my own home for the indefinite future, and I'm, I'm all for it. Uh, my partner's all for it, and the neighbors directly nuclear to me are for it as well. So, uh, thank you for your time. My name, sorry, my name is Philip Schoenberg, and uh, we've run a small business, Lawrence Douglas County, for many years. And uh, I would see people on the corners uh, asking for handouts and different things, and I would say, uh, get a job. And this is just was my response for years as somebody who 
needed help, couldn't find help. I was short on help, and there's these people sitting there. And so it's, it's been kind of interesting. <clears throat> In the last couple of years, the Lord has had to humble me a little bit. And uh, last winter is so unusual. Of course, at the church, Saturdays, sometimes we have moving parties, and we move people from this house to that house. Last January, I moved a middle-aged woman and her stuff and a dog to the woods. I've never done that before. Normally, you go to a place, you make sure the lights are on and the heat's on and the utilities are on. When you move somebody to the woods, uh, I mean, you want to be by that tree or maybe over here. And that was, I don't know, for me, it was kind of a, an eye-opener a little bit. And uh, <clears throat> I had a wheelbarrow. It was about a half a mile round trip from the parking lot to where she was going to make camp and back again. And I pushed the wheelbarrow, I figured, three miles that day, moving stuff. And then because we're in the tree business, I had a trailer load of chips, so I moved chips there so her tent could be up on chips. So. It wouldn't be just on the ground, you know. But that's when I found out that the homeless people had names and uh, had stories. I've never heard so much of so much sorrow and pain in my life. Uh, some of us go down to Bertram Park every week, and we bring ice and make sandwiches. And we bring stories, the kind of stories that Jesus told. We bring, we bring verses, and we bring stories, and and we bring band-aids, and uh, and uh, I don't know, just sort of things that that they need along the way. And uh, but I've never seen so much sorrow and pain. And uh, one of my favorite verses I like to give people comes out of Romans. It says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, I call that my sandwich verse. It's got hope on the top and hope on the bottom, and it's full of joy and peace. But anyway, thank you. Hi, I've been a member of the Lawrence community, raised my kids from the Pinckney neighborhood from the time they were in kindergarten up to graduating from KU. And uh, I've taken them down to Birchham Park. I've ran my dogs down there. I've watched the homeless encampments grow. I've watched the violence, the, the drug use, the, the needles when I go out there to run my dogs and my daughters have looked down and said, oh, mom, what's that? I understand and I have a heart of compassion and I understand what you're proposing and I just think as the Lawrence community, we can do better than a temporary tent shelter. Um, I understand that these people are going out there to these camps and, and trying to make connections and help and offer services, but it's like, 
how much does that cost and why can't we have one place where these people can come and know and if they want those services come there and receive them instead of I mean, I'd be scared to walk out in those camps and try and make a connection with some of those. I've been accosted before by a man with a pipe just running my dogs. So it is scary. I'm fearful for those ladies that are trying to propose this. I just, I think as the Lawrence community, we're better than that, better than some temporary tent city for the cost. I mean, can't we do better and have a place where our homeless or houseless people can come and receive those services and those connections and I don't know that's just my opinion uh, raising my kids in those neighborhoods it is fearful you do worry those are public parks that our kids go to the pond the river the the parks and you 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 run into this and I just think if we can gravitate a, a better place and just be mindful of what they're trying to propose and hold them accountable for more statistics and numbers on who's actually being helped, who's, who's successful after all this work. You know, I would like to see that. I would like to see numbers. Even the park that was um, put out by the hospital, the, the camp out there, I never saw any results. Like, what were the numbers on that? How successful was that? Was That was just a temporary band-aid i just want us as a community to be better and more mindful of a more solid place instead of temporary and moving them around like they've already been moved around before i just i wish for them to get the services so that we don't we can all feel better and everybody deserves a, a good home with dignity and food and and care and schools I, and so that was just my opinion thank you very much thank you Hello, I'm Tim Olson. I uh, I've spoke with you guys before and was on the homelessness, and I'm still that. I've uh, been here near four years. I'll be graduating four years in February, and I was hoping to not do that, but it's getting closer now, and I'm having a hard time getting there. They've helped me out getting some of my necessary things, my birth certificate, and they're working on getting me to where I can get down there to get my other things set up. Uh, I still have no phone. It's hard to make any contacts with anybody or for them to make contacts back. It's homelessness isn't just being homeless. You're without a phone, you're without a wallet. People have taken all those things. I don't have anything to really call my own. It's all been taken. My pictures of my babies are gone. All the things that matter to me are history. They've been stolen, ripped off, ripped up, plowed under. I've been twice by the city moved, twice moved by the flooding. Now I'm going for another run. I'm getting tired of moving. I'm 62. I'm tired of this. I don't need to be homeless. I could go with old folks housing. I'm not an old folks, man. I'm still fighting. And I'm going to fight for everybody out there, right here and right now. We need to do this. We've got to find a way to get people off the street. I don't know if I'm on the HMIS. I know I've done interviews with other people, but not them. 
So I don't think I am, so you probably tag another one on there. There's a lot of us out there, and it hurts to be there every day. It's harsh. Every morning you wake up to hot, and you sit in it all day. And then it cools off a little bit at night, and the mosquitoes come out. It's all fun till you live it. Camping is fun when you want to do it. It's not when you're living it. These people need places to go that are safe. You're right, that's utmost. I couldn't, I, I tried to participate in the motel thing when they had that. I went to one night. I came back to no tent and nothing there. That don't work either. We need a place where I know I can leave my stuff. Lock and key? What's that? There is no lock and key out in the wilderness. There's no safe zone. I understand the people how they don't, they don't feel safe with us around. But I'll be honest, I'm one of the ones that'll help make them safe. I'll bring a flower to her every day. Time. Thank you for your time. Thank you. My name is Rick Renfro. Thank you for listening to us. It's a huge problem. It definitely needs to be dis solved, and it can be solved by all these different approaches that we're talking about all across the board. And all the ideas that have come up tonight I think are awesome. I think that team that you got that just got hired on is, has done their research. They kind of got an idea and a plan. And it's all, uh, it's usually about money, isn't it? Dang it. So we need s'mores. You need 200 s'mores. If there's 200 uh, people out there in the streets, you need a one-on-one. -on -one. Well, they can't do that, but if we can get, I don't know, 10, uh, 10 clients for one s'more, and if we can find a place to coordinate all this stuff and do it, and I don't know, there's lots of opportunities and thing. I think we need to think outside the box. It's not just a temporary camp out behind Johnny's that's only going to be there for two months. It's been there for two years now. It's a shopping center that's not working now that we can fit out with beds and keep people inside or something. But there has to be a coordinated. Right now, you're getting a coordinated effort from these girls. They need this, the resources in order to make those things happen. And we have to think outside the box, tie everybody together, and, and, and come up with plans and information to give everybody. Because when somebody tells me, hey, this is going to be temporary, I'm okay with it. But then when it runs on for two years, and now you're hearing, uh-oh, we're going to have a barbed wire and lights in a camp out there, then, then it's a whole different story. So we need a plan. We've got to stick to it. We got to tough it out. We got to spend some money doing it. That's my comments. Thank you. Good evening, Commissioners. Ted Boyle, North Lawrence Improvement Association. I've listened to this all evening, and I haven't seen anybody give any numbers on the two different groups of people that we call homeless. Uh, Seventy percent of them are transients that come here from out of state, out of county, and then there's 30 percent 
that are local, true homeless people that we help and that I personally hire to do odd jobs around. And these people, the 30 percenters, are intimidated and they tell me about the threats and the, the theft and that goes on from the transients, the professional transients. Now let me tell you how we arrived at that. I'm hooked up at Ballard pretty good down there and Becky gave me these numbers, 70 and 30 percent, and that the uh, transients were intimidating the local homeless, telling them not to come up there and get anything from the pantry or benefits or anything like that. And, but the 30%, the, the local homeless people, they want to better themselves. They want a hand up, not a handout. The transients, they're here just for the handout. And let me tell you why. I, I'm right on the levee. My, my, I'm not 100 feet from the levee. I know what goes up and down that levee and across that bridge every day for 48 years, and I've lived in North Lawrence for 70 plus years. And I grew up on the levee on the other side, down by the A Street boat ramp. And I used to sit out there and I'd watch in March and April, the transients come to town. They'd stay the summer, come October, they'd be gone. 2020, pandemic came. They came, the city started handing out stuff, they stayed, and then more came, and more came. And the population of the transient homeless has tripled in three years. And I know this because the North Lawrence Improvement Association and the Ballard work together on this. And we donate two, $3,000 a year at North Lawrence Improvement to Ballard to help uh, the local homeless people, the 30 percenters. So you need to get your priorities straight. And the other deal is I've met you with all of you and I've told you that you need to get together with the county and get on their backs about putting a space to go out by the jail, a destination uh, for them to go, for the homeless to go, and then we can do away with all these campsites. And I agree, shifting them around from neighborhood I'm to neighborhood, and especially, y'all target the low core neighborhoods. You don't put any of these people out Wakarusha. So anyway, that's my story. And we are not a friendly neighborhood to the transients, the I local, Thank local you, homeless. Local homeless. That's Thank your you, priority, man. You do what you want to do, but not in my backyard. <clears throat> you can start my time a little bit down the road. <laughs> My name is Benita Chanel, and oh, um, Benita. Yes. Can we have you lower that a little so we can hear you better and, and see you over the screen? <laughs> There's a little button there. Can the someone help her? On, the on corner here. Down below. Okay. Thank you. You're fine. You just have to keep on bringing it down. <laughs> As I've been sitting here listening to the comments, I um, 
you know, obviously we, we have a problem and we've been two years in a crisis mode as it relates to uh, the individuals that don't have housing. Um, and I want to just remind the city commission that at least some of the fault rests with prior commissions. Um, I recall when the city commission passed um, a rule that punished landlords if they allowed more than a certain number of unrelated people to live in housing in the same apartment. Uh, you may also recall uh, the time when um, the uh, city went with Home Depot and allowed them to take property where the trailer park had existed. And we've kind of continued that pattern and there have been multiple other trailer parks that have been removed or eliminated that provided affordable housing for people with the least, oftentimes, but not always, um, amount of rent. So we need to, we need to think about our own um, actions that have contributed to what it is that we're seeing now. Certainly the pandemic had a big impact on what we're witnessing in the community now. It's your responsibility as our city leaders, as well as Douglas County, um, to address this, this issue. You are the ones that have the power. You are the ones that can make the changes that are needed in terms of uh, code changes or whatever it is that's needed. The folks that are working as outreach workers are going to need you to push away all of the structural barriers that are creating the problems that we're witnessing. We know that among the homeless population, there are families and individuals with kids. There are resident people that have lost housing. Um, we know that there are foster kids that are aging out, that are living out in the woods and in the conditions that we're seeing now. We know that there are too many single women out on the street that are being horrifically abused um, physically and sexually because of their vulnerability. We know that there are people that are mentally ill. We know that there are people that have addictions. We know that there are people that have made lifestyle choices and we know that there are criminals amongst this body of people that are out there. Tent time is uh, approaching its end um, and we can't continue to do these temporary fixes. We've done it for two years now. What is it gonna take for us to identify permanent solutions? Time. Um, if anybody wants to donate time to me so I can finish. Um, the use of the fairgrounds. Why aren't we using those buildings and the fairgrounds to house people? Um, are we going to continue doing the hotel reservations for folks? Um, we can't have people living in tents in December and January and February. Um, it's just, you know, it's, it's not the thing to do. Um, the failure to include neighborhoods in the decision-making, that was a very wrong choice. Um, and that's, that's triggered the reaction that you're seeing in North Lawrence. Why is it that our communities are the ones that have these issues placed on us? Um, you took the uh, East Lawrence Recreation Center, you took the community building, last winter and place folks there. Um, and then that disrupted the ability of our kids to be able to use those facilities. 
so you can't just keep on doing that. You talk about equity and diversity and, and inclusion as part of your philosophy and principles. But instead, we see a lot of inequity. We see a lot of victim blaming and exclusive practices. And so we need to flip that. Um, there's no plan. There's no prioritization of who's going to get what. <coughs> and so we're just kind of kicking the ball down the road. And we've got to stop doing that. Thank we've you. been doing this for two years. What is it going to take for us to take Serious action. Thank you, Benita. Do I need to sign this? Uh, you don't have to. It would be nice just if you gave us at least your first name so that we have it for the record. Okay. My name is Jennifer Adams. I. I My name is Jennifer Adams. I've been homeless for a year and a half now, and I'm already living behind Johnny's. And I've listened to everybody here tonight, and yeah, it can be a scary place, and you run into scary people, but you can do that anywhere. The same with services, yeah, there needs to be more. But a lot of those people can't come to you. It needs to go to them. I don't even know what to say. Life. Life can be very messy. The only difference between us and you guys is we don't have walls to hide it in. We do our best, but still. And putting us in a place where there's no trees or nothing, there's no protection from the sun, no protection from the wind or anything, it, it makes life even more tougher than it's gotta be. But putting us all, all the homeless into one encampment that spells trouble in capital letters because a lot of them out there are the scary people you talk about. And you put those in with the ones who aren't, people get hurt. There's a clash of just everybody's beliefs, their morals, it all clashes, just like it does with what we call insiders, people who live inside. And I've ended up running my own camp behind Johnny's I've even had the cops tell me that has, they're surprised that there's been no police activity. I don't ha they don't have to come back there. The ones that are there, we've known each other long enough, we've become like a family. And we stick together. And we don't allow the crap to go on back there. We don't allow people to come in and start crap. When you hit the gate there, or when you hit the road barricade there, it all stops. If you have a problem with somebody or whatever, it doesn't matter when you come there. Everybody gets along or don't come. But some, there's a lot of things that could be done to make things better, but going to one encampment is not gonna help. It's gonna make a lot of problems that nobody wants to deal with. Not even me. And I've dealt with a lot out there. I just hope that you guys can understand where we're coming from. And I don't know, figure out a way to help us. <laughs> I don't know what that way might be. I don't have answers. 
but thank you for listening. Thank you. Good evening, my name is Lauren Henderson. I am currently the director of the DARE Center in downtown Lawrence. DARE's an abbreviation that stands for drop in and rest. A moment of cuteness on my part, but at any rate. It's a, it's a place where people can come for a cup of coffee, have a shower, do their laundry, uh, receive their mail, just some basic human services to sort of pull their life together a little bit. Um, we've been in operation since June of 2016, so, or excuse me, 19. So um, it's going well. Last year we saw 452 unique individuals. Of that number, 25% were housed, but they were precariously housed. 25% um, were women. Um, I don't have the number of uh, the percentage of folks who are strictly Lawrence-based, but with the homeless population uh, nationwide, they, they come and they go. And over the, the years that I've been in Lawrence, um, since 03 involved with homelessness, I've seen a lot of the same people, and so I'm not quite sure who's homeless and who isn't. There, there's a very steady percentage of of folks, but it, it, that's just the context. I just want to say briefly that I'm supportive of what this team is doing and proposing and working on. I think a clean and safe place is ideal and homeless people, to the extent that I can speak for them, will like a clean and safe place. But uh, as the previous speaker just said, just one encampment is, is going to be not probably work because you have some people who for their mental illness they're not going to come in for safety reasons because they've got some issue with somebody who's already in the camp they're not going to come in so uh, as it said in the newspaper if you don't register for the encampment then you'll be given a citation so here we are we've worked really hard to not penalize and criminalize homelessness and we're just doing it again it's not um, not a workable sort of positive plan, you know. It's 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 a negative. We're going to pen you up somehow, rather than the positive approach of help you out, and which which it's wanting to do. So I'm I'm just here to just say in general, I'm very supportive. I think there are some serious questions still to work on. Uh, the extent that mental health, for instance, uh, care or or will be in the camp itself on site. Um, mental health is time by and large, you know, the big issue. Thank you so much. Thank you. <clears throat> Hi, uh, Jeremy Rothkuschel, Lawrence, Kansas. I first want to say that I concur with a lot of the uh, earlier speakers. Um, especially in relationship to uh, acknowledging the good faith and good effort that is being proposed here and the work that's being done. But I also concur with those who are saying we need to get way more back to basics in terms of how we can actually solve these challenges for our people and the people in our community. 
um, including the the idea of we need to think about housing insecurity uh, more directly. That makes a lot more sense. People, some people are on the edge of houselessness. Uh, that's a very difficult place to to be, including looking for resources that are pre-existing, such as in areas of maybe boutique uh, police shooting ranges, uh, where there's lots of resources that maybe could be redirected in order to then lessen the uh, amount of police activity that needs to be done in relationship to this. Uh, and then also just getting back to the basics that were mentioned earlier in terms of an emphasis on funding for more housing, more social work, more basic public resources, such as bathrooms, such as uh, shelters, such as water, ability to shower, these kinds of things. We know how to do this. This is hundreds of years of technology that we know. Now, the final point I want to make is the question of this big data marketing solution that's being thrown at us seems to be a bait and a switch in certain ways. I'm not saying I'm not a Luddite in that way, although people should actually go back and look what the Luddites actually said. They were actually about who's going to be empowered by technology, who's going to control technology rather than destroying technology. I'm, I'll admit I'm suspicious of this community solutions uh, organization being brought in rather than these basic uh, conversations that we need to have. The backers of that are, you know, the bank, big Wall Street banks such as Bank of America, J.P. Morgan. These are some of the big people who helped create a lot of houselessness back in 2008 at the very least. So I'm suspicious of intent here. Big data being channeled into things like Microsoft, Steve Ballmer, another big donor to Community Solutions. Uh, at this point, we know that data that's being collected in this community by the police uh, axon body cameras is already being stored in the Microsoft Cloud, which has been largely outsourced in terms of security to the aforementioned Israeli military intelligence state. Um, so there's, I think we need to get back to basics. I would urge people to go read Thomas Paine's Agrarian Justice and truly authentic in indigenous American thinkers like Henry George, land value-based taxes to increase the actual uh, value that's held by the community rather than property taxes, which only punishes the middle and working classes. Thank you. Any further public comment? Is there anyone online who would like to provide public comment? Please raise your digital hand so Sherry can call on you. Stephen Watts. Thank you as I adjust the controls to get into the virtual reality of this thing. Are we all having fun? I mean, there's an old man. I. I I really do look at this as a piece of humor for me because nothing is going to change irrespective of the data and the information that you people are given. What this fine man said just before me, I got to echo those thoughts. Why is it that my town commission refuses to take this information and use it. I am annoyed that I did not get telephone calls back 
from those civil servants that I didn't make the effort to call. I'm not going to give your name. I'll do that in the future. You work for me. I understand that you don't see it that way. I had a problem with this two years ago when somebody trying to tell me that I didn't want to hear what they had to say. Well, there's some truth to that reality, but you do work for the people. And I appreciate your efforts. I do. You know, what's going on here with respect to these, it is embarrassing that this town commission just patronizes this community service input and then goes about doing its own business, irrespective of the information that you are given. I understand that it's onesie twosies. Let me end on, this is the same town commission that had, or that ran the last police chief out of town because he was black. That's what you did. This town commission ran the last police chief out of the town because he was black. Your turn. Thank you. Matthew Falk. Hello, my name is Matthew Falk. I work for the Burton Ash Community Mental Health Center. Um, I'm going to throw my two cents in here. I, I support the idea. I agree that we need multiple camps uh, for the reasons that have already been, been cited. Um, I think it is extremely important for leadership to understand that the, the problem as it exists today is the result of unmet need and insufficient community resource insufficient community attention and energy on multiple fronts. It's not just one thing for an extended period of time and, and not just a few years, but uh, many decades. Um, we are therefore digging ourselves out of a large hole. And it's going to take a lot of community resource to do that. If, if we are going to make the kind of changes that we, we aspire to in respect to helping people achieve housing, reducing the level of poverty in our community. That takes the allocation as a resource of a large amount of public, public resource because those services, social services are not sustainable in a private business and model environment, right? That, that is how we sustain those services by allocating public resource. Um, that is the hard choice that we have to make as a community if, if we're going to achieve the goals that we're trying to achieve in respect to poverty reduction. Because that's what this is really about, is about reducing poverty in our community. And homelessness is one of the, or if not the lowest or most uh, extreme form of poverty in our community. Uh, so leadership really needs to have their eye on the long term, understanding that this is a years long process that we're going to have to go through. And it's going to take some uh, really hard decisions in respect to allocating sufficient resource. This is not going to be a one or two year process. Um, there's a lot of federal dollars that are out there right now, and, and that's a really good resource. Those dollars are going to dry up more than likely within just a few years. We will have to sustain that on the local level uh, with local public resource. Um, this is a larger plan that we have to engage in. 
we have to keep our mind on uh, set on the idea that this is a large plan that involves multifacets. The camping process will only be successful if we follow through with the next steps, which have to be focused on permanent supportive housing and supportive services and social services to help those individuals succeed. If we don't do that, then we will quickly turn into some of the other communities across the country who have large encampments and who did not equally invest in the housing and service portion of the planning that is required to address the issue. You know, you see Portland and Seattle have large encampments that have been there for decades and decades. We will be the same if we don't provide the, the follow through with our plan. So I, I, I support this plan. I 100% support this plan, but we have to follow through with the larger vision. Thank you very much. Thank you. Marielle Ferrero. Good afternoon. My name is Mariel Ferredo. Um, I am employed with the Lawrence Douglas County Housing Authority, but I am tonight speaking as a community member and uh, individual has um, volunteered with the emergency shelter, uh, worked and provided support to many camps in Lawrence, and um, have also had the opportunity and privilege to be involved in the current planning for our temporary shelters, winter shelters, and the more long-term. Um, I, I do first want to say that it is very encouraging to hear a lot of this public comment uh, being supportive of a multifaceted solution. Um, I believe that what is being proposed tonight is the first step in a series of steps that we need to make together as a community uh, with public education, with support, and with the utilization of our resources in order to start dismantling the, the systemic problem of homelessness and of folks who are precariously housed and those who are at risk of homelessness. Um, I primarily work with folks who are at that at risk of homelessness and it is a very, very short um, distance and you know one misstep to becoming homeless. So we are not as far as removed from that issue. Um, but what I want to focus on tonight is that though we are, there is a proposal for one encampment temporarily at the time, I would love to encourage uh, more than one option for uh, the opportunity of safety, the opportunity of choice, and that we provide multiple encampments before we begin enforcing, before we begin per, uh, using punitive measures to further harm and displace this community. Um, it is necessary that we have a space to send folks to, that we have storage options for people to dignifiedly leave their belongings and not have to separate from them. It's important that we help work with those experiencing this, have um, community agreements and, and standards for their space. This is a, these are community spaces we're talking about. And there are folks that are frustrated with, with camping, um, but have gotten to the point of dehumanizing these individuals and forgetting that they also have just as much right to be in these spaces as anyone else. But we do need to start with these temporary solutions in conjunction with all of the work that our social service agencies that our community advocates are doing um, to bridge the gap. Homelessness is the immediate in our face um, problem, systemic problem that we're seeing. 
but we need in addition to that systemic changes for affordable housing, systemic changes for shifting the power dynamic between tenants and landlords. Um, thank you for your time and I, I hope to see more change and, and more movement in this. Thank you. Sherilyn Wells. Um, I would like to say that these problems have been brewing for years. You all know that you've heard other people speak. I have a lot of respect for Matthew and what Howard said. At the same time, I would like to tell you, and it's difficult to describe, but I feel like over the years, there's been very mixed messages, uh, mixed what they wanted or expected of a peer movement outside of them. The peer movement outside of Burt Nash tried to bring up some of these issues decades ago. We tried with very little money to do a whole lot of things. I felt like the advice that we got from Burt Nash sometimes was, I thought, very unenlightened and in fact, maybe led to some people dying. They told us we had a tiny little transitional program. And I asked someone that still works there, I said, what am I supposed to do when these people relapse? A lot of people that were referred over there, dual diagnosis is a big problem. And I was told by people that work up at Nash, well, just ask them to leave. If somebody relapsed or showed up in that condition, we were just supposed to ask those people to leave. And I had the very unfortunate experience of asking those people to leave or refusing. And the next thing I knew, they were dead. One Native American that very specifically asked me if I could stay at Acceptance House. The next thing I knew, he had been run over. And this state was all over us about who we should let in and who we should let out. And, oh... We got signals, oh, some of these people don't be, want to be around these rough sort of um, people that didn't fit into the system so well. And we want a peer movement that's really for the people that are down with recovery. Well, you see, it's the peer movement has always been for the left out, the lost, and the people that didn't fit in the system so well. We've always tried to be a voice for those people. But I felt like, God help me, I felt like Bert Nash did not treat us very well. They wanted us to take people in and then throw them out or, I wish I could describe it, there was some good cooperation, but I felt like they gave us such incredibly mixed messages and you know, even recently, somebody at this little peer group I was volunteering with now, they dropped off somebody that was addicted, was addicted to meth and was homeless. It had been violent with their own family. And they acted like when I called up and said, I think this is problematic. Somebody asked me, well, why did I think that was problematic? You know, there needs to be some discourse with the rest of us. Some of the rest of us might have some ideas. Thank you, Sherilyn. Is there anyone else online? Uh, Darren McQueen. 
Good evening, everybody. I'm a disabled veteran and social worker from Lawrence, Kansas. Um, I've lived here for the past about three years. Um, I've worked at the Lawrence Community Shelter, the Winter Emergency Shelter, uh, Camp Woody, and now Burton Ash. Um, along the way, I can say the number one thing we need is just there needs to be more money and more resources allocated um, to these teams out there. And I would like to speak on as a community member and a homeowner in North Lawrence, regardless if you're in the 70% or the 30%, um, you're welcome here. And I think you should be treated with dignity. Um, and thank you for your time. Thank you. Any other online comment? That's all the comments, Mayor. All right, commissioners, any discussion? Quick question. I don't know if Matthew is still on, and I just wanted to ask him because I know he works with, with Burt Nash. I know that Douglas County is part of a one-county region in regards to the um, our state's um, balance, balance of state continuum of care. I know that there are other counties that have their own, not, they're counties, but they have their own continual care separate from the BOSCOC. You have Cedric County, um, our more populated counties, Shawnee County, so Topeka area, Wyandotte, Johnson. Um, and I just didn't know, Matthew, if you could speak to, if you can or cannot speak to, the idea of, of Douglas County becoming its own continuum of care so that we could be more laser in and focus on our work. It puts us in a place that's a little bit more strategic as far as funding. Um, it, it around coordination, um, because we've heard from other entities that are part of the continuum of care who have not been really part of the conversations. There's been this silo that's been spoken to by several individuals. So a very long ended question just to ask in your subject matter ex expert opinion. And I would love to hear from, from Cicely, Jen, Danny, if you're on as well, do you believe our county for us to move forward and to move progressively and intentionally into, do, into addressing um, homelessness or unsheltered, the, the many, this one aspect of our housing, should we what, what do you think would be the benefit or is there a benefit in removing ourselves from that balance of state continuum of care and having our own continuum of care? Move money from the police department to fund the program. Porter, can you mute him? Matthew. Okay. Nope, I don't know. This is, this is Danny Walters, um, I can I can try to speak a little bit to that. Um, it I have I was on the steering committee for the balance of state continuum of care. Um, I have since stepped down, and Jen is now in that in that space. So um, I will I'll defer to her to to maybe you know speak a little broader to this. But um, it it's definitely something that we can look at. Um, I have been with the city since two thousand and eight. And I believe up until 2007, we were our own continuum of care. Um, we joined up with the balance of state, I think, because it was a mutually beneficial thing where the balance of state would be able to have access to more money and we would be able to have access to more money. 
Um, where that's sitting now, and someone can correct me if I'm wrong here, but we don't have any funded programs in Lawrence and Douglas County through the continuum of care. Um, that is something that I certainly want to see changed because there is a there's funding out there. And I, I think that, you know, we're we're trying to to get in there with this NOFA with the SMORE team. Um, the county, the same thing with some permanent supportive housing. Um, I know that um, LCS has an application that's going in as well. So we're we're definitely exploring some of those venues with this special NOFA. Um, I'll uh, see if Jen maybe wants to to add to that. But I mean, it's it's definitely something that that we've talked about and that that we can explore. So, yeah, the money is controlled by the profiteers. Come on. So Jen Woolsey, um, Homeless Initiatives Division, Pro Homeless Programs Coordinator. Um, thank you, Danny. So I, um, I will say that I am, I actually, my experience comes from um, Johnson County, so they do have their own COC. So I am familiar with what that looks like. Um, I think where we're at right now in that space is that we have to look at um, if it benefits both sides. And I do believe that we are entering a space now where we are benefiting more from the balance of state. And so I am a proponent of trying to continue to see what that looks like. I will be completely honest that Douglas County, based upon the other regions that um, we are partnered with in the balance of state, it does look very different. I mean, we are definitely more of the urban type community and we do have a um, more increased number of those who's experiencing homelessness. So there are those difficulties at time, but as Danny stated, um, I think that where we're in a space right now is that we do need to get to the point where our agencies are accessing that money. Um, again, LCS, I do believe is looking at the special NOFO as well as the annual NOFO, but unfortunately um, we're just not there yet. So I would again promote that we continue staying in the space that we are now, but definitely have those discussions with our service providers on why they're not accessing those funds. Okay. I'll, I'll briefly add, because again, I could write a dissertation and probably do a TED talk on this, but I'll keep it very short and sweet. I know we have information coming to us from some of our other commissions on source of income. I look forward to hearing to that and us having that and bringing that and um, bringing that conversation in as we talk about the multi-layers effects of housing, whether it's unhoused, access to housing, housing stock, housing affordability, the whole gambit of it. So stay tuned. The dots are out there. We're connecting the dots. It's, it's at an incremental speed that maybe I don't like, but at least we're moving in that direction and I couldn't be more proud to be a, be a commissioner at this time because we are doing the work. Um, in regards to anti-poverty work, um, in regards to housing, um, our community member here, our neighbor here who talked about eviction, eviction protection, there's more information coming about that as well. Again, the conversations are happening. Um, we're, it's, it, it's coming. We're, we're just, it, it's, just get, it's getting there bit by bit, but trust and believe as long as I'm on this commission, it's gonna be heard. Um, we talked about the continuum of care. Um, Jen, you are the subject matter expert on this, thank you. Cicely, thank you for, for putting this work together. And um, 
I, I will trust your judgment on that and, and, and know that we are in the best space that we need to be and that we are keeping our partners here accountable to that. Um, we've talked about permanent supportive housing, and I know that several uh, commissioners have talked about it. I know our county has spoken on it. We've talked about it as a commission collectively and what that could look like um, in current funds that we have that we've set aside as well as with ARPA dollars. There's continuing conversation that can happen with that. We're not done talking about permanent supportive housing. We know that that is a piece that has to happen in addition to providing transitional services, vouchers, in addition to having multiple encampment sites, in addition to having emergency shelter. It's coming together. It seems it seems icky, it seems difficult, it makes your stomach feel bad and it gives you indigestion. The work is happening and I couldn't be more excited for that work to be happening right now. Um, access to resources and support and effective use of them. It's coming, we're, we're tapped out. We're not the only community that's tapped out on social services, behavioral health services, by, God, by all means, we know we need it. We need it for those who are unhoused, those who are homeless, those who may be on the brink of experience homeless. Heck, I need it. So we all in our community need these services and we know that we're at a limited capacity for it and it's coming and we know it's coming. We just need to align the dollars around it to do it. Um, I'm just gonna leave it at that. That's enough for me, and I think that was my three minutes. <laughs> I guess I would just uh, jump in and say, first of all, um, I am excited. When we started the homeless division, um, you know, this is the direction we wanted to get to, um, and it's been it's been a long time coming. Um, but certainly, uh, um, Cecily and, and Jenny, I I think this is. You know, I appreciate your work and, and hope you stick with us and, and keep leading us in the right um, direction, Danielle and, and Leah as well. Um, and and so I guess a couple thoughts, um, big picture, and then, then to a couple of the issues or policy issues that, that were brought up. First of all, you know, I said this a couple of years ago, and I think everyone in this room agrees that if, if finding a place for people to camp is our goal, we have the wrong goal. The goal is you know, permanent um, housing. And, you know, I know, um, as was mentioned by Commissioner Sellers, you know, I, I, our next step here is is to talk about the ARPA dollars and, and where we're going to spend our ARPA dollars. You know, certainly I think the county has moved forward on, on quite a few um, affordable housing projects or funded some with their ARPA money. I'd be very interested in using our ARPA money to support those and move them quicker, because until we have those um, supportive housing units, this is, again, as many people said tonight, it's just a repeating um, problem. And so hopefully we can use some of our ARPA money for that and have that conversation, you know, as, as, as well as using some of the ARPA funding, not only um, you know, for the, these sheltering options, including some of the options Leah talked about a month or two ago, including storage options, um, which was mentioned tonight. Um, so I, I do think um, we need to, to look at both of those. Certainly I'm in support of um, by name list and changing from point in time. Point in time has always been a, a, a questionable um, HUD enforced uh, number. It's a number we have to count for HUD purposes, but you know, at my time at Family Promise, most of the people, many of the people served in Family Promise don't count as homeless no. um, under the definition HUD uses, and therefore we know where they're at, we know they're in 
homeless services, but they don't technically count as homeless under the HUD definition. So again, using the wrong definition and changing that, um, I, I certainly support changing that to a by name list and um, you know, working on, on getting a better way to count that. Certainly, I hope we get the funding for the small and, and um, you know, I can see the, the benefit of that as well as continuing on these sheltering um, options. Um, again, um, we don't, these are short-term goals or short-term, not goals, short-term um, necessities maybe is the way to say it. Um, but we, we also need to be putting our effort and money into the long-term goals to get that permanent housing. Um, so um, I, I look forward to the continuing conversations, look forward to, to being able to support those, um, both with ARPA money for short run, but also long-term um, funding as we've put in the budget the last couple of years. Yeah, I just want to say I really appreciate what I heard tonight from Jen and Danny and Cicely. I really do appreciate the work you're doing, and this is really the first time we've heard of some of the direction you're going to take um, with the new housing initiatives division, and um, what I'm hearing is great. I really appreciate it. I do want to point out that I heard several comments tonight about what the city is or not doing or is doing, and and just to give a little bit of history, you know, since I've been on the commission, this has been a topic of discussion several years ago when I was first on the commission as to who's responsible for it, what can be done to solve it, and we continue to evolve with those questions. Um, and I just want folks to understand or, you know, realize that we are here today with the Housing Initiatives Division because of the comments we heard during the strategic planning from our community, that this is what they wanted to have addressed. So don't think we're not listening. It does take time, unfortunately, just as Commissioner Rosella says, sometimes it's a lot slower than we want it to be. But we have listened and we've created this division. I think this year we put $6 million into it. Next year, I think we're putting another $6 million. And that includes affordable housing, the homeless initiatives, the, some of the uh, community block grant money. So we have really, um, I, f I feel as though we have really made some strong stances and actually provided some resources for, for what we know needs to be done. And um, I, I just commend what I'm hearing tonight, and I just, I just want you to know that I'm behind you, and we just need to continue real strong. Thank you. I would agree. Um, thank you, Cecily and Jen, for your presentation. Um, it's very thoughtful and informative, and I really appreciate the direction that we're going. And also, I appreciate it. Honestly, I was, you know, very. Uh, I was happy to see a lot of our business owners along the river um, in their comments that um, they realize this is a problem that we have and it, that needs to be addressed in the most humane and in the best way possible. So that um, I I'm glad that that sentiment is out there and I that's kind of why I had the earlier questions I did because I always wanted to get the ball moving and make sure that we're at least moving on two tracks. I know this is more or less of a triage, but you know, that we have a permanent solution down the road because I, that's definitely something I heard from, from all the folks here. And also the front end part of it that, you know, I, I did see on the presentation that keeping folks from becoming houseless is of incredible importance. So any resources that we can devolve towards that is, monumental so alluding to what commissioner so said about that and vice mayor larson we are putting in the work it is not going as fast as we like um 
but we are still pushing the rock up the hill. So um, I just want to thank you guys and thank everybody for the participation because we really do take all those comments to heart, and we're really, we're really working hard to see if we can wrap our arms around this. Uh, thank you, Commissioners. Um, I, I, I will probably have some more specific questions. There, there's an item that'll be later that's you know somewhat involved, uh, and I just want to kind of I'll just say I, I have some questions about um, some specifics um, in a later agenda item. Um, but for now, I want, do want to thank staff and all the commenters um, and the um, community experts that we have um, for coming here and commenting. I really appreciate that. I want to check and make sure commissioners don't want 10 minutes. Yeah, we'll break in. 10 minutes. I'm <laughs> just checking. Uh, let's say 8.43. We Are we good? Yep. Thank you, everyone. Um, we will now be able to move on to our first regular agenda item. <clears throat> Consider approving a request to rezone Z-21-00138. Um, and before we carry on here, we got a couple things we'll need to do. Um, Mayor, on, on items... Um, one and two, um, I have to recuse myself because of um, my law firm's involvement with Westall. So I will recuse myself to the back room and join you when we get to item number three. Thank you. <clears throat> um, and as long as we're doing that, we might want to go ahead and do our ex parte communications. Um, I've, I've received... Um, correspondence, uh, I think, is all the same correspondence that we've received, uh, that we've all received. Um, and there is a person, unfortunately, whose name I do not recall, who I've heard speak at Lawrence Association and Neighborhoods, um, but I, I, I sadly do not recall her name. She may be here speaking, so maybe she can remind me who she is. And, um, oh, good. Jeanette. Oh, there you are. Thank, thank you, Jeanette. Um, uh, I, I don't know that she has said anything that, that she hasn't said in um, other meetings, uh, planning, or um, in correspondence. Any other commissioners? Yeah, I've, I have spoken with Jeanette and Charles Walder both. Um, had a meeting with them well over a year ago, I think, at least a year. Um, sat in their backyard and met with some other neighbors, too, and I don't recall their name names, and we toured the area that was proposed at that time and had a discussion regarding the neighbor's concerns about it all and what the process was going to be. And so we had that discussion. And then I have briefly, very briefly talked to Gianna Dawson about, um, about the project. I spoke with her. The last I remember is at the, the last, um, open house. And she, she, um, at one point I asked for some explanation on, on some aspect of the project. And then she asked me how it was going. I said, well, I just really, would would recommend that you continue to talk to the neighborhood and that was it um nothing other than the correspondence that we all received commissioner sellers i've had no ex parte communications <clears throat> all right i think we can go ahead and move on um <coughs> excuse me everyone i was fine all day until now um let me make sure i get i think we have mary miller hopefully Oh, there you are. And, uh, and all, there is a 
item, the special use permit. So if you'd like, I can present one and move into the other and you can vote on them separately. Can, I could do. Yeah, sorry, Mary, your sound isn't great. Do you have a. <laughs> yeah. Let me try moving closer. I have a new webcam. Can you hear me better? It's, um, it's pretty mumbly. Um, you don't have another microphone or anything, do you, Mary? <clears throat> hmm. Let me just make sure I have this on. Is this better? It's not amazing. <laughs> not better. <laughs> uh, uh, um, well, we might have to try to carry on best we can. Um, well, I can speak up if this helps. Yes, okay. and enunciate perhaps, yeah. <laughs> I'll, and I really am sorry. It works fine for my other meetings. Something must not be working. And I have, I'll be talking for a while. So I will try to remember to speak up. Let me know if I need to as I go along. As I mentioned, this item has two parts. One is the rezoning and the other is a special use permit. These items were before the Planning Commission in June of 2021. Now, the Planning Commission held a public hearing and returned the items to the applicant and directed them to work on issues and questions that were raised at the meeting. And the items were returned to the Planning Commission in July of 2022. Um, in the interim, the applicant had purchased additional land, and um, I'll pull up mine. If I can share my screen. It says it's disabled. Could you enable me? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Just one second, Mary. There. Got it. Thanks, Kurt. Thank you. So in the interim between 2021 and 2022, Evergy purchased additional land from KU for their project. So the rezoning request and the special use permit request both expanded their area and the staff reports were revised to reflect the changes that had been made. So with the additional land, the rezoning request, um, you can see the original request in solid blue and the expanded request in the dashed lines. It went from about 7.23 acres to 9.57 acres. The project does include one lot along Castle, the 1844 Castle Drive, but this is already zoned RS7, so it's not included in the rezoning request. Per the cooperation agreement between the City of Lawrence and the University of Kansas, land that's owned by University of Kansas or the KU Endowment Association can be zoned UKU. And this land is exempt from the standards and processes in the Land Development Code. Um, it is governed by the cooperation agreement. So when property is sold, it is necessary to rezone it to an appropriate urban zoning district. And this map shows the zoning districts in the area. The area in yellow is the UKU zoning district. 
and the subject property outlined in blue must be rezoned due to that change in ownership. So with a rezoning request, one of the things we look at, one of the golden factors, is the compatibility of the new rezoning uh, with the zoning and land uses in the area. And um, on this graphic, it shows the surrounding zoning and land uses. To the west, we have RM24 and RS7, both residential zoning districts. Uh, properties on this area are developed with detached dwellings and uh, with a water tower. You can see that directly to the west. To the south is an area that's zoned PUD or planned urban development. Um, this was zoned prior to 2006 and the base zoning at the time was RS2 and that zoning district converted to RS7. So the property is surrounded on two sides by UKU zoning and on the other two sides by RS7 with that one um, alone lot that's on RM24. The proposed RS7 zoning is consistent with other residential zonings in the area and the same uses would be possible on all the properties in the area. Zone uses that are allowed in the RS7 district are very limited. Now, the uses that are permitted by right are residential uses, minor utility, these are ones that would serve only one subdivision, limited extended care facility, neighborhood institutions, churches, on crop agriculture. And then there's a list of uses that are allowed with special use permits. Now, some of these are considered low impact, but they could have offsite impacts like adult daycare homes and cultural centers. These are permitted with a special use permit. Other uses which may be necessary to locate in residential areas, such as utilities and cell towers, but may have offsite impacts are also permitted when approved with a special use permit. The intent is to use this property for an electrical substation and a special use permit has been submitted for this use. The rezoning is being evaluated for the appropriateness of the proposed district in the area. The proposed use will be evaluated with a special use permit, which will be considered right after this item. We also look at potential detrimental impacts to this nearby area when we look at rezonings. The detrimental impacts that could occur with this project would include primarily the visual impact and potential noise. Other impacts that could occur with uh, utilities would include traffic, however, and activity, but this would be an unmanned facility, so there would be no traffic activity, except when there's need for repairs or maintenance. So this slide will show the changes. This was the layout that was proposed in 2021. And this is the layout that's proposed with the additional area. The primary changes are that this buffer area was increased. It leaves enough room for expanded landscaping and also for a fire access lane. And you can see the difference here, the one row of landscaping and the landscaping was also extended to provide a, a better buffer. The Planning Commission voted unanimously at the July 25th meeting to forward this rezoning request to the City Commission with a recommendation for approval based on the findings in the staff report. A protest petition was submitted for the rezoning request, but this petition was found to be invalid as it was not signed by the owners of at least 20% of the um, state required notification area surrounding the property. That would be the area within 200 feet of the property. If the protest petition had been valid, a supermajority vote, 
four out of five commissioners would have been required to approve the request. As a protest petition is invalid, a simple majority would be sufficient. The special use permit is required when you have a minor utility that serves more than just one subdivision. The special use permit entails special processes such as the public hearing and evaluation of the uses operating characteristics and it's possible to apply special conditions and this all works to help ensure that there would not be a significant adverse impact on surrounding uses or on the community at large. This substation would be replacing an existing substation that's currently at the corner of 19th Street and Meadowlark Lane to the southeast. The most common impacts with special uses, as I mentioned earlier, include traffic, lighting, noise, and activity. Uh, this would be unmanned, so there would be no traffic. They are requesting a modification from the parking requirement. And only exterior lighting would be emergency lighting only, and this would be used just for during nighttime maintenance and repairs. So a modification is being requested to allow the use of floodlights as this would allow them to be on shorter poles and have less impact on nearby residences. A substation would have a visual impact. The applicant is proposing about 120 foot wide landscape buffer yard. This is increased from about 75 feet with the original application. This is a wider buffer yard. The landscaping being proposed exceeds that required for a type three buffer yard, which is the buffer yard that would be required between an industrial and a residential use. In addition, they're proposing a 10 foot tall stamped concrete wall surrounding the facility. Okay. Probably one of the principal impacts that could have, besides visual, would be noise. And as shown in attachment A of the 2021 staff report, substations make a humming sound, and staff measured the sound level at three existing stations. This was not a scientific study, but the purpose was just to get general information on the sound level of substations. The average sound level of the three substations was 54 decibels. This was measured at the fence of each substation. And at that time, in, with the 2021 uh, staff report, staff recommended that a sound study be conducted to ensure the sound level with this substation is appropriate for location next to residential properties. The applicant conducted a sound study, which is included as an attachment with the 2022 staff report. The study staff found that with four transformers, the noise level on the southern side of the wall would be between 49 and 52 decibels. At the property line, the noise level would be about 38 to 42 decibels. On the east side, 41 to 44 in the center, 44 to 47 in the west center, and 43 to 51 on the west. And this change is due to topography. Of where the facility is lower than the adjacent property, it would be louder. Based on this sound study, staff recommends setting a maximum sound level on the southern side of the wall of 52 decibels. This would ensure the sound attributed to the substation would not exceed that shown on the sound study. And we received a recent communication, a neighbor provided a set of questions, which I'll respond to these questions throughout the presentation. 
One of them was if the ambient noise area of the area had been measured when the applicant had the sound study done. And the applicant indicated they had measured the ambient noise and it was an average of 46 decibels. This was taken along 19th Street and they indicated that this was noted on the sound study. Another question was how would the standards of the special use permit be enforced? And I talked with our um, director of De development services and he explained that if we receive complaints and the sound level is found to be higher than the permitted 52 decibels, then the development services code compliance staff would work with the substation operator to reduce the sound level. Steps that would be taken could vary depending on the source of the sound. It could include such things as a sound deadening insulation if it's the air conditioning within a building, which is one of the primary noises associated with substations. But depending upon what's causing the sound level to be higher, they would work to have that be lowered. He noted that construction noise is exempt from the noise ordinance, but if complaints are received about early startups or weekend work, again, the code compliance staff would work with the operator to see if they could resolve the issue. Amendment, suspicion, or revocation of a special use permit is possible, but compliance is generally achieved without the use of these measures. This um, is an online decibel chart. It shows that a sound level of 40 to 50 decibels would be similar to a quiet library and a sound level of 50 to 60 would be similar to a moderate rainfall. And this chart is just intended to illustrate the various decibel levels since we're mentioning 52 to kind of see where that would fall. And that would be on the southern side of the wall. And then we have the vegetation and the distance of about 120 feet until you get to the property line. Another one of the comments asked um, how the sound level would be monitored and what kind of changes could be made to the special use permit without requiring a revised special use permit. And the city operates on a complaint basis. If a complaint is received that the sound exceeds that permitted in the SUP, city staff would measure the sound level. If it exceeds the limit, they would work with Evergy to bring the facility into compliance. The special use permit is for the use. Changes to the site, which are basically changes to the site plan, can be approved with an amended special use permit site plan with the same SUP process as the original plan, or minor changes, and the development code lists changes that would always be considered minor. The only one that would apply in this case would be changes to the landscaping species could be approved by the planning director administratively. So very minor changes could be done administratively. If a change were proposed to the SUP use, such as increasing the intensity or changing a condition, the special use permit would need to be amended and the special use permit process would be required. A 10 foot stamped concrete wall that I mentioned is going to be surrounding, would be surrounding the facility is being proposed to provide noise and visual screening. With the facility being moved to the north, additional rooms available to the south for landscaping and for the fire access aisle. So the buffer yard is being expanded both width and length, and the number of species is being increased. And most of these species will be evergreen or semi-evergreen species to provide year-round buffering. And in that list of questions, one of the questions asked was, how long would it take for the proposed landscaping to grow tall enough to provide buffering? And I sent that question to the city horticulture and forestry manager, and he provided the following information. The evergreens will be four to five feet tall at planting, 
and the deciduous trees, the ginkgo, the magnolia, would likely be 8 to 12 feet tall based on the caliper size. Everything will be slow to put on much growth at the first, about one to two years, but beginning in year three, you could reasonably expect 8 to 12 inches of growth annually on all of the plants. Another question raised by neighbors was what was the size of the other facilities that had been provided as examples? And the applicant noted that the um, Sherwood example is 320 feet by 140 feet. And the facility in Manhattan at 87th and Mize is 500 feet by 580 feet. They both have one transformer with the potential of a second. As I mentioned, they are requesting two modifications one is from the parking requirement. Our development code does require employee parking. However, as this is an unmanned facility and the only time traffic would be there is for maintenance or emergency repairs, uh, the request is to be um, not have to provide just parking. Uh, the other is from the lighting standards. Um, full light cutoff fixtures is required. However, they're asking to be able to use floodlights so that they can have them on shorter poles and the lighting will be used only when they're doing the emergency maintenance or nighttime maintenance. The Planning Commission voted five to two to forward the special use permit with the requested modifications to the City Commission with a recommendation for approval based on the findings in the staff report. A protest petition was also submitted for the special use permit. This petition was also invalid as it was not signed by the owners of at least 20% of the state required notification area. If it had been valid, the four out of five vote would have been required. However, um, as it is invalid, a simple majority would be sufficient. So that concludes my presentation. I'll be happy to answer questions if you have any for me. Any questions, Commissioner? I have a couple on the, the, the trees that are gonna be used as the buffer. Um, how old of trees will you plant? Will um, it be just real seedling type or is it going to be four or five year type height of plants? I don't know the age of the plants because they're always listed in the development code by size. And as the um, horticulture, he said the evergreens would be four to five feet tall, right, small Christmas trees. And the deciduous trees would likely be eight to 12 feet tall because we measure the deciduous trees by the the base, you know, the trunk. And so uh, that's the size we expect them to be when they're planted. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. Appreciate that. So another question I had was regarding replacement of trees that have, they're diseased, they're dying or they're dead. Um, what's going to be the stipulation for the timing of those needing to be replaced? I'm going to require they have to be replaced in 30 days, 90 days after being, um, observed if they have a problem? I believe the time, this is another thing that our code compliance staff work with, and they work with this on all site plans and special use permits. If vegetation dies and if it's a the planting season, a, a good time for planting, they would expect them to be planted right away. Um, they typically work with them, but they do try to get them planted right away. If it's winter, then they would allow them to wait until a better planting time. So is there a time frame that they're given during planting season? Um, to replace that plant? I believe there is, but that's done by our code compliance officers. And I don't believe they 
get a lot of time. You know, if the time is right for them to do it, they're probably directed to do it. If they're not able to find the plants, we've had times where the nurseries just don't have the trees they need. And in that case, we could approve alternate species. Or, you know, if it's a short time, that's all something that's worked out as they go through the compliance. Okay. Could somebody find out if there is like a 30-day deadline that they're given to replace a plant? I don't believe there is a set one. We could set one that if it's a growing season, they'd have a minimum of 30 days to replace any dead trees. We could certainly do that. I would I would appreciate the consideration for that. Um, I have some questions about the sound, but I would like to hear from the um, Evergy because I listened to your presentation. I would like to hear again uh, what you have about that. So I would like to reserve those for later. Any other questions for now? Okay. Good evening, commissioners. I'm Gina Dawson with Evergy, and we appreciate the opportunity to come and share some additional information with you tonight about our proposed Lawrence Free State substation. Uh, it's been a little while since we've been in front of the commission, so we wanted to take a few minutes to give you a quick overview of the company um, as your designated electric provider for this, this area. As a regulated utility, we are charged with the responsibility of providing service for everyone that lives within our service territory. And that service territory does uh, is comprised mostly here in Eastern Kansas and Western Missouri in the Kansas City metro area. One of the things that we take a look at when we're doing projects like this and overall as we run our company is how we balance our interests. And we look at our employees, our customers, our stakeholders, our, I'm sorry, our investors and our communities. And we need to balance those interests as we get, come into the projects that we propose. We do take our responsibilities as that designated service provider very seriously. We do wanna be good neighbors for the people that we serve. In fact, our employees do live within our service territory. So when we're talking about the people we're, we serve, we're talking about our own families, our neighbors, and our friends. So we do have very robust community um, community programs within Evergy. We had about 24,500 volunteer hours from our employees in 2021, and almost a million dollars in employee donations to nonprofit Ever uh, nonprofit agencies throughout Evergy's service territory. We have about 250 employees who serve on community boards. And we give about $6.7 million in annual support to hundreds of agencies throughout the, our service areas. And it's important to note that those donations are not included in customer rates. Those come from our, from our shareholders. Uh, during COVID, we were one of the first uh, utilities in the nation to implement a moratorium on disconnects because we felt like that was the right thing to do early on in, that, in the pandemic. And we had about $1.8 million donated for COVID relief efforts in 2020, again, at no cost to customers. We've supported about 120 local agencies, primarily emergency efforts, economic development programs, workforce training, and customer payment assistance. Like, much like what you do as, as utility providers for your residents, I know that you look for ways to provide energy or, or utility assistance for people who are having difficulty paying their bills. 
In 21, we were help, able to help secure about $47 million in utility assistance for our customers. And we also host outreach events for our customers who might need help, who have difficulty accessing. Um, we do those online where people can dial in. Uh, we pr provide services for hearing impaired people to be able to participate in those. And we had about 355 such events in 2021. We also try to look to partner with communities like yours to look for economic development opportunities. We have an economic development team at Evergy to work on putting together proposals because as our communities grow, we grow. So it's important for us to be good partners in that regard as well. And we were named a top utility um, in economic development for Site Selections Magazine in 2021 with about 2,300 jobs created in 2021. We've had a couple of great successes this year already with Meta and with the Panasonic battery plant that is moving into DeSoto. And of course, there are, we're part of those proposals in being able to provide uh, not only reliable electric service, but also sustainable service. And that's what part of our value proposition as a company that we do take a look at um, providing affordable, reliable, and sustainable energy. We have, again, that responsibility to serve the people within our region. We have 1.6 million customers. And the costs that we incur are evaluated by the Kansas Corporation Commission. So that what we charge people in rates is diligently tracked, and it's based on costs. And we have to go before the commission and provide a rate case that says, here's what we spent, here's what it was for. And then they are, are able to allow us to recover the reasonable and prudent costs. And that's approved by the commission. So we study every project very thoroughly and to be sure that it supports delivering that reliable, sustainable, affordable power our customers need. Otherwise, we can't recover the costs of it through rates. So in keeping things affordable, we've put through, and since forming Evergy in 2018, we've done a lot of work toward cost cutting. That was the whole purpose of the merger. And by doing that, we've been able to reduce our costs versus our peers. We're down about 4.2% in base rates while inflation for other consumer goods are up about 9.7%. And that's something that we're very, um, very, again, diligent about looking at our cost structure to keep those low. With regard to transitioning to cleaner forms of energy, we have a goal to be net zero carbon emissions by 2045, and we're continuing to work toward that. Right now, about half of the energy that we provide to our customers comes from sustainable sources and non-emission, so between our Wolf Creek nuclear plant and the renewables that we've added, uh, we're at about half right now, and again, working toward zero net carbon emissions by 2045. We also have uh, reduced emissions for the coal plants that we do have, because while we need that base load to ensure reliability, we wanna make sure that it's cleaner, and we've cut emissions, carbon emissions by about half since 2005. We've also got uh, a fresh water retrieval program to where we're recycling water resources. As you know, if you think, if you know about some of the water table issues that we have in Kansas, we're working to make sure that we're recycling water. And we've had about a 50% decrease, decrease in consumption of water resources. So with that overview, I wanna turn it over now to Dennis Lawler, who's gonna go through with you some of the specifics about the Free State Project. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate that. Good evening, Commissioners. My name is Dennis Lawler. She mentioned I'm the project manager for Evergy. I'm going to take a couple of slides and walk through our overall process for every project that we go through. And then I'll start and dig into the actual specifics of this particular project. So the first thing is the big, the big tall steel poles, the transmission poles, we go 
across communities across the state that carries electricity and it goes to a substation. The small uh, wooden poles are distribution poles that actually take it from that substation to local houses, to local businesses. So this graph here, this chart here shows that. However, it's not just easy as doing that. It's very complicated. Again, we go through a lot of processes. We have our engineers are the school in engineering. They they are they are the experts. So when we go through and design this. That's who I rely on. Our planners. Where do we need to emphasize? Where do we need reliability? Where do we need to help the communities to make sure that they, if they want uh, to uh, develop or um, put station uh, for electric uh, vehicles in their houses? How do we make sure that happens? So our planners make sure that we have that that infrastructure in place, that reliability in place. So it's a process. Maybe there it is. Any project that we do, the free state, we use the same process, but any project that Evergy does uses the same format. We start out with a routing selection. If there's a, if there's a transmission line to do the route, we, uh, we, talk, we, we go about the easements, if we need easements for that particular uh, project. Um, we always include community involvement, and, and we'll go through that a little bit because we did a lot of that in this particular uh, project. We, then we do uh, engineering the soil uh, type of soil samples, make sure the geotech is correct on how we want to design it. Then we do the line engineering and then the right of way, and then we do the construction. But the overall big picture, this is the process we follow. It doesn't matter what project it is, we follow the same process. And so there's a lot of stakeholders, and I'll go in a minute about the one in particular for this particular project. So why are we building this, this, this substation? What's important about it? There's a, there's a variety of reasons. One is, as Jenna mentioned, it's the reliability. Well, not only is it our mission, it is our statutory re uh, responsibility to provide reliable uh, infrastructure to communities, and that's what we're doing here. So this not only uh, it solidifies Lawrence, it solidifies Douglas County, it solidifies this area. It helps with infill development. So folks want to. Grove, some businesses want to come in. If somebody wants a, a, a station for electric vehicle power, we want to make sure that reliability, that ability is there to, for them to go do that. That's what this is about, this project. And then, of course, um, um, the infrastructure, just to make sure that, again, we have the, uh, everything here in one place. So one of the questions that came up is, why here? So when we go look at a substation site, there are certain criteria that we look for. In this particular case, West Campus substation, it's, it's small. There's some deficiencies. It doesn't have any breakers. We need breakers. So when we looked for a site, we looked for something that was close to the existing substation, that was close to existing transmission lines, because we really didn't want to build anymore if we didn't have to, close to a uh, distribution lines, and also as important, we had to find a willing landowner to sell us the land. So someone that was willing to sell it to us that met those criteria, and this site does that. After going through the planning process with our engineers, going through the whole process of where we, wanted, where we need the help, this was it. This was this location that we wanted, that we needed. So who were our stakeholders? Of course, the neighborhood was the stakeholders. Lawrence, the city itself, was a stakeholder. The businesses were stakeholders, the university and the endowment who we purchased the land from, the stakeholder, community leaders like yourselves, and then of course across the region. So if we can go backwards. So 
when we met with the stakeholders, oh, I guess let's go back, I'm sorry. Let's go through this first. So we met with the stakeholders. We had variety, we sent a variety of letters out. We had a lot of face-to-face -face discussions with the landowners. We held a Zoom meeting early on. Then we also had a in-person meeting with the landowners. So we went through this whole process. And when we did that, they came back with some, some, some suggestions for us, which we took that information and modified, as Mary mentioned, we modified our original application to accommodate a lot of the information that we got from the landowners. Anything that we could accommodate, we tried to do that. So one was, we, they wanted us to move the substation north. So we did that. We bought 2.3 additional land to, make, to move it north to get farther away from the landowners. They wanted us to perform a sound study, which we did. And we'll go through in, in a little bit because I got a slide on that that we'll, we can get into. Uh, they wanted to add a fire lane south of the, of the substation, which we accommodated and we put a fire lane in. They wanted additional landscaping, which Mary went through that we did. And the type of plants that we went through with the horticulture and the city to make sure that it would abide by the proper plantings that they wanted. Um, we also made sure in terms of our uh, drainage, a runoff, that when we, when we did the other one, they were concerned about ponding water along the south and the north end of their property, south end of the substation. So we made sure on this new design or the updated design that all the, rain, the water runoff would stay contained on our property and then would go down east to the creek. So we made sure of that. And then, of course, then we, talked, we looked at trying to move the equipment around inside the substation. We accommodated as best we could to make it safe and what we wanted to in terms of our specifications requirements that we had to meet internally. So we had about 284, 284 um, contacts with the community in terms of phone calls, emails, in person, and then uh, meetings. So this is the layout of the site. So the great hatched area that goes from Bob Billings, Bob Billings is, see if I can get it. Oh yeah. So Bob Billings is the east-west road on the north side of the property. Castle is on the west side. So the gray hatched area will be the construction lane that we will use during construction. When it's all done, we'll, we'll put it back as, as it was and we'll reseed it. The pink area, there are, there are existing transmission poles on the south side of the substation. So where those pink line, that pink line is, the actual transmission portion of those poles will, be, will go away. And what we'll do, and I'll have a slide in a minute, but we'll actually cut those off so the distribution side of the pole will stay. The top portion of the uh, transmission, that's what we're gonna cut off. So we'll make the poles shorter. The red line will be new uh, transmission line that goes from the substation to the existing transmission line on Castle. We will use the road on the east side here that goes into the substation. That will be our new route into the substation. So this is the layout of the existing uh, proposed substation that we have today. So we'll start out, we will put one transformer in. We submit it, we always look, we wanna be completely transparent. We, for um, full build, be potential four. But this will be what we'll build when we go out there and start construction on this substation. As Mary showed this a little bit ago, this is the rendering diagram of what it will look like. This will be the, the proposed walls that we will have. Mary mentioned that as well. These will be uh, about nine to 10 foot high concrete walls that will enclose the entire uh, perimeter of the substation with a gate. The gate won't be concrete. The gate will be iron. Um, 
So, and we'll have security lining inside the sub. As Mary mentioned, there'll be, the, the, the lights will be below the height of the wall. So if we do need to go in there at night, which will be very few times, but if we do need to go in there at night to do maintenance, it, it would not be reflected outside the substation. Uh, wildlife cannot turn the sensors on. It won't turn the lights on. Um, and the poles, well, we'll get into that, but there'll be about 65 feet that's inside the sub, 65 feet high. So I mentioned that they will build uh, um, some transmission structures. So I mentioned so the, the picture on the left is what the new transmission structures will look like, similar to what we have along Castle as it is today. Um, we'll just have a, a few more of them from the substation up to Castle. The diagram on the right, I mentioned that we'll take the existing uh, transmission line south of this uh, substation and cut off the top portion and where that red line goes across, that's where we'll cut it off. So it'll be about 20 to 35 feet, depending on which structure it is, and if it's in a goalie or not, how tall that would be once we cut it off. The tall poles would be about 70 uh, feet tall. So the project timeline. So we would start construction this fall, then we would continue to, uh, so next spring and next fall, we would actually would continue with the construction. This, uh, this fall would probably be a lot of the dirt work we probably finish some of the dirt work next spring, and then we'd start actually building the concrete wall. And then once we got the concrete wall, we would start building the actual substation where the footings, the concrete footings for the equipment below grade and then above grade would be next fallish, with the uh, complete construction of uh, the fall of 24. So in our, it'd be, yeah, by Thanksgiving time issue would be, that would be what about would be completed. So the other thing I mentioned before is that we did look at some other um, items that came up in our public meetings. So one that came up was home values. So again, when we submitted this back to the um, Planning Commission, and this was the answer we got back, to, they, they saw that this has not had any significant impact on ho uh, housing values. So that was what came back from. The other question that came up was the, the, the tri yeah, I'm sorry, question. Um, did, I, did I hear you say that the, the county said there was no impact on the I, property I, values? No, maybe. Hang on. There we go. Um, that, that there's no significant impact on the property values. So that, that, that was what they, they came back and said. Okay. It would not negatively impact the home values of the neighborhood. The trail, so there is a plan um, that, there, that there's a trail system that goes through there. So we, we can only control the portion of the plan that's on our property. So we made sure as part of our design, it hasn't been approved. However, what has been approved is the profile. So they want to go across, they want to go across our, uh, our, our, our road going in. So the profile that we provided the, the wildland part of the parks department They've approved that, that that profile is rideable, that it would work if somebody came in and decided to build a trail through there, this would accommodate that for their trail, for a bike trail. Again, the other thing that came up is uh, stormwater. Uh, folks were concerned that we were gonna force water onto their property. They, had, they were concerned we had to be able to build a berm. So again, we went back, redid the calculations, redid the drainage on our property, make sure that all the water stayed within our property and flowed down east of the stream. And that was also approved by stormwater engineer. 
A couple questions came up is what equipment will be inside the substation? So we'll have breakers, we'll have transformers. Breakers are, um, I always explain, it looks like uh, Star Wars. If you go look at something, it's got, it's a big sickle with, with a bunch of wires, or big, big old, I say wires, but it's like cords coming out of them. They're probably eight foot high, but they're not, they won't make any noise. They're not, they, they make a clicking noise every once in a while, but you won't hear them. You have transformers, which what the, study, the, the sound study was about. They were concerned that, that transformers would, would cause noise. Uh, switches, again, are not gonna be very loud. And then the, I'll just skip down to the, the um, uh, power control center. It will have an air conditioner inside because during certain times of the year, we'll, there'll be people in there, and so we don't want it to get too hot. So, and the equipment doesn't get hot, so there'll be, there'll be um, an air conditioner. So we did have a sound study done by a sound expert. He came out and he did uh, a variety of different testing, um, provided this information back. This is the same information that we provided at the open house but he came back and again, that's where uh, Mary came back and said that we wanted to uh, make um, our condition of 52 decibels, which we agreed to. We actually, we proposed 56 and they came back and said 52 based on the study. Um, so we went back internally though, I guess we just didn't say, yep, that works for us. Um, we went back, met with the manufacturers of the, of the uh, transformers to make sure, hey, this is the criteria we're getting, and we got four of these out there. Are we concerned about meeting this decibel? And the answer was no, we can do that. We've done that, we've tested it. This is what our specifications say it is. This is what it is. So we were very confident that we had the experts do the sound study. We had the experts building the transformer. We have our own internal expert engineers evaluating that information. Um, so, um, so right now the current noise at 19th street, um, is a pro that's the street south of the substation is approximately 45 to 54 decibels, depending on where you exactly are on the study. So that kind of shows you, we put a chart together showing, and we'll be at 52 at a, um, we have to be, uh, quieter than 52. So it kind of shows you with that chart, um, some of the different things that are the city traffic at 85. Uh, normal conversation at 60, 70. So it provides you some examples of what noise levels we're talking about. So ag again, this substation that we're, we're, we're proposing tonight is, is it's gonna help with the liability. It's gonna prepare for infill uh, infill de de development. It's gonna prepare for any future uh, businesses that wanna come to town, any, growth in terms of any areas that you want houses to be built. You want uh, um, electrical vehicle stations in your houses to um, charge them up. This is the way to go. This will provide the, uh, the strength and reliability for Lawrence. I mean, the bottom line is not only is it our mission to provide electricity to Lawrence and Douglas County, it, it, we're statutorily required to do that. And with our experts of engineers, our experts of planners, when they looked at the system of where we should go, how we should go about it, this was a site that was selected that said, this will help us, this is what we need to do. Next one's questions. Did not get there. Next slide's questions. Okay. Thank you. Are there any questions? Um, I had a quick one. Uh, on that one slide you went past with the transformer and it just had the one in red. On the sound study, was it the equivalent of four transformers potentially? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, that's correct, four transformers. 
I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, so Casey from Bartlett West uh, was helping there. Uh, Casey Colburn, Bartlett and West actually live about a half mile right south of this on 22nd Terrace. Um, the sound study, there was two exhibits submitted. One was for one transformer and one was for all four transformers. And <clears throat> the zones that you see in those exhibits are, um, as Mary said, for the elevation change. So um, it wasn't taken, it wasn't done on a 2D level, it was done based on 3D, um, three-dimensional. More? Is that it? Oh, yeah. Okay. I want to talk about swales for a minute. If you got to um, get some more information on your swales, can somebody tell me what the design criteria is going to be as to how large of a rain event that they can handle? Uh, typically, we look at for this um, as a 100 year event. 100 year event? Is that is what going to be in the, would be in the permit if it passes? That it has to be designed to a specific yes, rain uh, event? Yeah, that's what it was designed to as of right now. Okay. And you worked with Matt Bond on that? Yes. Is Matt on? I don't believe so. No? I don't see him. No, oh, okay, that's fine. So you're telling me that you are going to design that to a 100-year rain event, is that correct? Yes. Okay, thanks. Thank and the uh, culvert, uh, there's a, if you want to talk stormwater, there's a mm -hmm. culvert crossing that has been approved by um, the Corps of Engineers mm -hmm. um, for the access road, and so that has already been, we started that process a while ago um, because uh, it took a HECRAS model, and so that has been approved, and we've applied to renew it um, since it hasn't been built yet, and uh, Matt has also um, seen, uh, reviewed that study. Okay, okay, great. So what, um, I'm gonna, this is a staff, what recourse would the neighbors have if they do get flooding in their neighborhood because the swell was inadequate to handle the rain event? use permit then it's just a civil matter and you have to take it to court but as you have a special use permit and plans if it was inadequate i believe that matt bond could require additional measures you know the swale could be enhanced so if it fails and it's not a hundred year rain event um then we would we would require them to redesign it and build it appropriately i believe so I, I saw Randy come on. I want to make sure, Randy. This is Randy Larkin, uh, Deputy City Attorney. Mary is correct. If it if it fails or does not meet our standards, the city would make them rebuild it. Um, if it was built to the standards and it still forced water a certain way, we would we would work with them. But then it does become a civil matter between Evergy and and the property owners, and that's pretty much how it would work, but we would we would work with the, the developer and, and make them come into compliance. Okay. Yeah. Commissioner Larson, if I could add, um, if you if you look at the existing drainage, it actually drains into backyards. Mm -hmm. And so the part of this is actually forcing the runoff to make it to the east, to the creek, and pretty much between the berm of the landscaping, that will still 
you know, that will still go down the property line per se, but um, we're trying to eliminate actually some of the runoff that was existing just sits out there mm -hmm. or makes it into backyards. Right. But the runoff from the existing situation, a lot of that is captured by the open space that's there now. When you put your hard surface on there, mm -hmm. it's going to make the situation potentially worse because mm -hmm. there's going to be a lot of lot of runoff. Yeah, and we are trying to split the the way the site's graded, so it's not all going to the south. Yeah, that um, it's going to the north and the south. Um, so there's two swales. So we're trying to, um, based on the topographic. Uh, out there that we're trying to force it in multiple directions and just not towards the neighbors. Okay, thank you. Thanks. Um, I wanted to ask about buffer zones because I thought we, we have an MOU with KU about buffer zone requirements. Is this not effective for this property? I think it's like 150 feet. Or is it because the property, property is transferring owners that it would not matter? Can somebody tell me that? Jeff Craig, Plagan Development Services, Vice Mayor Lars. Your question was about the 150 foot requirement of the, the KU agreement. Yeah, I think I thought we had an MOU with them. The, the, uh, right. The cooperative agreement says that if KU undertakes development within 150 feet of the boundary of the campus, they would form an ad hoc committee. So it, it doesn't develop in the same as a buffer yard would require under the land development code. It just triggers a different process under the cooperative agreement. And in okay. May take a, a bit here. I can also answer your question about the timing of tree replacement if that would help out yeah. too. So yeah. initial code compliance cases usually work in 30-day increments. So if a tree was to die or need to be replaced, um, code compliance notifies an individual and gives them 30 days to fix that, you know, plant a tree or get that resolved, unless the conditions of the season are not relevant where the tree may not survive. And then they give them time to then come into compliance when it becomes a good planting season where the tree can actually make it through. Okay, so there's language within the SUP that says they have to follow code and that code is 30 days or within season. Is that what I'm hearing? It, correct. It'd be within 30 days would be the code compliance case. The code actually says if the landscaping dies or does not survive, the applicant is required to replace it. And in the 30 days is part of our compliance case to allow someone time to source a tree and then find a crew to put it in typically. So uh, just allow some time to work within whatever parameters are out there, but it is an immediate fix to put a tree back if it is in the landscaping plan. Okay. But the SUP will state in there that they have to follow code. Is that correct? That's correct. They would have stated you, you have to follow the code. Okay, great. Um, the other questions I have is regarding the sound. And that is, so they're, they're agreeing to a decibel of 52. Is that what I'm understanding? And who would be the dis deciding entity that says it's not meeting that standard? Is there a study that would be done or would the city just say, we're standing here, it's not 52 and you got to do something different? I believe our development services would use a decibel meter, which is what I use, but I measured the decibel level of the substations. So they would go out and you'd have to do it at a time of day when there's not a lot of traffic or street noises. So you'd probably go out really early in the morning and measure the sound level. Just like when we have lighting complaints, they use lighting meters. So we don't rely on subjective. We, they would use a meter to measure the levels. 
Okay, does that state in the SUP that that Evergy agrees to um, accept the measurements as measured by the city of Lawrence, or are they going to want a separate study? It doesn't require a study. If they wanted to uh, challenge our meter and provide a separate meter, we could get a set of meters. And if they all came up with the same number, I mean, we could calibrate meters if that's the question. But there wouldn't be a study, it would just be a measurement. Okay. I saw Randy come on again. Yeah, yeah this is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. If if they were in violation of the, of the noise uh, requirements or the conditions of the SUP, staff would do measurement they would find that they were in violation they evergy would be cited under the city code they would have 30 days to come into compliance but there would be an appeal period if, if, if evergy did not believe that they were in violation there would be an appeal and then there would be a decision made by the by the building code board of appeals or whoever that particular appeal would go to i believe it would be that body so that's how that would work its way out so if it goes through that process of appeals, I'm assuming they would appeal if they didn't meet it. Um, what line does the uh, planning or the code enforcement draw as to when they say, no, you can no longer operate here because you can't meet these requirements? Would our staff ever say that? This is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. Theoretically, yes, we could get to the point, the city could get to the point that says, you're not, you're not in compliance with the SUP. And there is a, a process for withdrawing it to come to the city commission and the city commission could then make a decision that they are not in compliance with the SUP and it could revoke it under the city code. So yes, that, that, is, a, that is a potential outcome down the road. If, if, if the noise was bad enough and they weren't coming into compliance, it might also end up through the appeal process in court over it. So there's a number of scenarios that might play out. But there is provisions for revoking an SUP when the uh, owner or the landowner or the occupant of the property does not comply with the SUP. So if if we come back with a measurement that the city has taken that it doesn't meet the requirements, we've gone through all that, is staff, are they in a position to say, we're going to no longer let you operate because you cannot meet that code enforcement? Because one thing I heard Mary say, during the planning commission was that noise limit will be difficult to enforce. And this so is really I'm, I'm concerned, yeah. I'm, I'm just concerned that that's signaling to me that they're not gonna potentially go to that line. They're not willing to do that. This is Randy Larkin, deputy city attorney. That is not a decision that can be made administratively. That, that They can say, you gotta come into compliance and there's an appeal process. If they come into compliance, they're good. But if they don't, if they don't believe that they're in violation or that our staff has made an error, they can appeal it. We can always say, hey, you're, you're just not in compliance, but the city staff does not have the authority to shut down the use. You're granting the use here or a special use permit here. That would be the city commission's decision to say, hey, this is just not working out. You're not in compliance. We revoke your SUP. Well, is city staff willing to to bring that to the commission as a recommendation because they aren't in compliance? This is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. That is an option. And, and I imagine that uh, if it gets bad enough, the neighbors will complain and, and it could very well end up before the city commission, yes. 
but I guess I didn't hear an answer, definitive answer that's, that if they aren't in compliance, that staff will bring to the city commission a recommendation to pull the SUP. This is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. They have the authority to do that, to bring it to the city commission, yes. Will they? Uh, this is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. Will they? I don't know, but they could be forced to do that. That you, you could direct them to do that. It could be done in many other ways. I would hope that they would do it. I, I just can't anticipate the future. Can I hear from Jeff Crick on that? Vice Mayor Lawrence, if I understand your question correctly, would we bring, if the case was in violation, would we bring it back before you for reconsideration? Is that the question? Yeah, the, the question is if they aren't in compliance and you go through all the appeals and so forth and they're still found not to be in compliance, is city staff willing to put in writing that the recommendation is to pull the SUP? If, they, if somebody's not willing to come into compliance and that is required of the code, yes, because it is our purview that you know, you do meet the code of that specific standard and those questions are in place there. And as Randy noted, you know, we would try to do our best to go through the appeals and follow the process that is set in code. Okay. So will that be written up in the SUP that if they aren't in compliance, that uh, that it will be brought before the commission for consideration? This is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. In the ordinance for the SUP, it says specifically that they are to comply with all the conditions of the city code and all conditions placed on the SUP. And if they do not, then they are subject to the revocation process set forth in the city code. And all SUPs say that. Okay, great. I appreciate that very much. So when Mary said that noise limit will be difficult to enforce, maybe she can help me better understand what she means by that. I, um, I believe I was responding to a question from the neighbors that they wanted the noise level measured at the property line rather than the fence line. And once you move about 80 feet away from the source of the sound and you start measuring the sound, it's difficult to know if you're measuring the residence air conditioners or the Evergy's air conditioners. Right. So I believe my comment was we can't move too far away from the wall and measure the noise. Or is it going to be impossible for us to say Evergy's making the noise, which is why the recommendation is to measure it at the south side of the wall. It could have other noise from the area, but that'd be the closest we could get. So to be sure we're measuring Evergy. Okay. Yeah, I'm understanding that the permit will actually say that it's the measurement is to be taken from the south wall. Is that, that's what I heard, right? Correct. Right, got it. Okay, thank you very much, Mary. I appreciate that. And Jeff and Randy. Any other questions? Look up here. Commissioner Sellers, did you have a question? Um, this might be a, a question for Mary. Um, they're only, um, Evergy is only buying this section. The The entire corner of Castle and Bob Billings will still belong to KU. Um, and, and even there's a little, there's a similar amount of space to the east of this. Um, what, what is there to stop them from doubling the size of this in the future? If they wanted to double it in the future, you know, they'd have to purchase the land from KU and then that would be an amended special use permit, which would come before you. So you would have to go through the exact same process. You know, it'd be possible for them to request a substation anywhere in the city. So they could request one right next door to this one or to expand it, 
but it would have to go through the review process, the public hearing, and then the city commission would finally have to be the to accept it. Okay, and, and any other questions? That's it. Okay. Um, thank you all. Um, let's make sure there's no public comment on this item. My name is Dr. Justin Spice, running for Douglas County Commissioner in District 1 as a Republican candidate. Uh, Courtney Shipley, question. I noticed that uh, Deputy City uh, Attorney Randy Larkin is a white guy. Do you trust what he's saying as a white guy? Or do you automatically write him off since earlier today during this meeting you made really racist comments about white men? As I'm sure you are aware, we do not answer the questions that are brought up at public comment. We That's all right, I'll wait. Staff. I'll wait. Do you just completely write him off since he's a white man? Silence is violence. It's a simple yes or no. pretty damn insulting to say that a white person isn't capable, like you said earlier, but then you sit here and what, are you believing him? Are you listening to him? Are you writing him off? Are you discrediting him? Are you discarding him? Stunning and brave, Courtney. Where's your conviction? Stunning and brave. Are there any comments on the actual item? Hello, um, my name is Mark Smelser, live on West 19th Street, and I'm speaking on behalf of my wife as well. Um, 
we bought our house. No, um, the backs up. Well, it's this property. We knew KU would build there someday, and it, we were. We thought, well, hey, can you build there? Great, we can we can move if we don't like it. And uh, we were surprised when Evergy announced the project. To their credit, they have made it much more tolerable, moving it, adding more trees. Uh, most of those steps were done with the, the planning commission. We're grateful to them for all of their help and asking tough questions. Um, just basically I've come to accept that it's probably going to get built and as it is it's not as horrible as we originally imagined but we still uh, look out at the field and it's just going to be humongous and so I ask you to not just take their word for it I'm not saying they're untrustworthy but think about are there alternatives um, right now it's being proposed with one substation, or sorry, one transformer in order to meet current demand. And that would include taking down a smaller transformer from the metal arc substation nearby. And with another transformer being built in the, probably the reasonably near future, I hope to buy an electric car someday, we're gonna need more power. But then room for four, which, uh, I understand Evergy's desire. You get a piece of ground, you want to build it big enough for any foreseeable possibility. But, you know, what possibility is four transformers? I mean, that's a lot. That's four times the uh, electrical demand. Is it possible with other locations in town to distribute that future growth, say, East 19th Street out near the fairgrounds? That's a large substation with two transformers right now. Um, the city is trying to expand west right now and annexing ground west of K-10. Can that be in the plan to build a large substation there? People can move there, choose to live near the substation and have that uh, capacity there for any foreseeable growth. And so I'm just asking you to uh, really, you know, make sure that Evergy is um, thinking about that and if possible, that can make it smaller down to a two substation size. Thank you. I submitted a PowerPoint. Is there, is it possible oh, to share it on the screen or should I just kind of read from my slides? I, hold on a second. It's on right. there. Thank you. Do I have to do anything? No, hold, hold on, Porter. We'll see if he can find it on our agenda. Um, oops. Oh. We've always done this via Zoom. <laughs> it's been the the world I've known, so I've just sat at home. Yeah, it's on the screen. Yeah. Right, you had it. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, Kurt. But it, Someone else is welcome to page through it for me. That's great. 
this year. Correct? Yes. Okay. Can it be moved up in the window? It's it's expanded as I can but, get it. That's fine. Um, I think if the commissioners have questions, you can ask me. Um, thank you, commissioners, the planning commission. Uh, it's a long night. I know it's hard to put on different things to think about tonight, but um, I appreciate your um, interest in our topic as well. Um, we're all passionate here in Lawrence about what's important to us and and the property behind our house and where we live is, is important to us and my neighborhood. Um, I'd like to introduce you to our, our neighborhood is a, a mixture of apartments, single family homes, duplexes. Um, it's a pretty great little quiet place uh, to live. Uh, Charles and I were the youngest kids on the block for quite a while and we've been there for 27, 28 years. Um, uh, now Mark and Carrie are some new the younger faces, but uh, all of our other neighbors are retired teachers and um, former employees of KU or Haskell, and uh, we've lived there for a long time. So that's why uh, it makes it important to us. Uh, as Mark said, the proposed substation is too big for uh, the area, and we haven't seen any examples of other stations near houses that are this large. And if they only need one transformer, why would you build a transformer for four state for a place for four transformers? And at the beginning of all this, more than a year ago, um, 50 years was mentioned. We might not need another transformer for 50 years. And you know, that's all we heard. So in 50 years, transformers might be the size of a deck of cards. I don't know, but we, maybe we don't need to build and destroy all that natural green land and wildlife habitat. Uh, for what might be needed in 50 years. Keep it small, keep it reasonably sized like the other ones that they have uh, shown us near that are so close to other houses. Um, I feel like this is a new, since we've, since Evergy wasn't able to actually uh, demonstrate um, putting in a, a substation this size near existing houses, um, the examples that we've seen have houses that were built after the substation was in or at the same time. Uh, so it seems like a new problem and it might need newer, different playbook for approaching it. And as the planning commissioners pointed out, we're going to have to live with building these things near cities and near houses because, um, because of growth concerns. Well, then maybe we need uh, different products and tools to do it. And the Evergy can be... Um, on the, the cutting edge of doing that. Um, the, the planning commissioners did admit that our, our neighborhood will take a hit for the greater good. Well, I think um, we'd rather, instead of be an example, we'd rather set an example. So um, I don't know that the, the sound for the houses that sit above the wall have been addressed. I just don't know that that's been there. So I think there might be other, other things that um, could be used to make this better for the homeowners. Time. Thank you. Um, this slide was addressed a lot by uh, the reassurance that the city code will be, mm -hmm. is in place and utilized to protect us. The swell question, I am nervous about who would pay for our, our damages to our house while we're finding a lawyer and going to court. Thank you. Um, Charles Walter. I live in the same place. Um, we appreciate the things that, that have come around 
through this process that the project has gotten a lot better. There's a lot more trees. There's some guarantee on those trees. The original project as presented to us had a line that said the trees were good for a year. And after that, there was, we had no uh, awareness of, of those being taken care of. So we're appreciative of that. We're appreciative of the berm taking away some of the drainage that came about in the, uh, oh, probably in the April meeting at the Aterra. That's when that conversation took place. But it, it makes me wonder why it wasn't there in the first place, which is the whole problem with this process for us. Um, we found out about this by accident and we called the newspaper and said, hey, what's going on here? We were remodeling our house and we took out a small loan to do that. Um, if we hadn't done that, we'd have been two more, three more months behind on our own preparation, right? Which is not sufficient. I'm a high or a middle school social studies teacher. I am not an engineer. I don't do this for a living. My day job didn't get any shorter. It got shorter today because I cut out of football practice to come here. I work 13 hour days this time of year. It's rough. Don't have sympathy for me. Uh, I choose to do that. At the get-go of the project, they offered a, a, a go-between who would contact us and we would send information and some information got answered and forwarded on and some didn't. And we pretty quickly decided that we wouldn't speak with that person uh, and we would only do things in writing. And after the June meeting when, they, when the planning commission said, you need to meet with the neighbors then if Evergy has this mandate to provide electricity, why didn't they? Why did they put that off until we contacted them three or four times and then they had a public meeting with the new redesign? They've wasted a lot of time and a lot of money, which is ultimately our money because we, you know, I really don't have a choice who I buy electricity from. So that's, that's kind of the frustration we've had. You'll probably hear some repetition in our arguments as well as we say, you know, make it smaller, make it smaller. In all of our conversations, we've heard things like, well, it's a 50 year poll. We probably won't put a second one in, may not need a second one for, for years and years and years. So we make the assumption that we don't necessarily need all of it now. And it worries me that they're planning for investors Fine. more than they're planning for me. So whatever we do, all of Lawrence is watching and we need to do what we do and it needs to be the best that it can be. Thank you for your attention on this. Thank you. Any public comment on this item? I think I heard Brandy Larkin say that the commission could codify protections for the homeowners. I think I heard something about that. Let's not just put this off to a civil matter that the homeowners have to foot the bill for. Because that's how your police get away with everything. Because they drop it back to a civil matter that we all have to foot the bill to do things with. And nothing gets done because a lot of people can't afford to foot that bill and pay their house payments and pay their electricity bills. Codify some protections for the homeowners. 
Any other public comments on this item? Is there anyone online who has public comments on this item? Can raise their digital hand for Sherry to call on you. Hi, um, just a quick um, addition here. Uh, <clears throat> if this project were to go through, I just wanted to make a suggestion if it hasn't been considered for this project and for any other city involved projects or Evergy or KU or developers that if the ground is uh, disturbed or plowed, it makes a lot of sense, especially in this case around water concerns to consider uh, putting in uh, carbon into the soil, for especially long-term carbon, biochar, biological carbon, and then maybe short-term uh, carbon in terms of compost. But soils that have biological carbon, biochar added to them can almost double their water retention uh, capacity, uh, both benefiting the soil microbes and then uh, would eventually benefit the wildlife, but definitely then also benefiting uh, the human landscape surrounding it. So uh, please look into that biochar. Thank you. Robert Dixon. Here I am. I want to do a, a screen share here. So let me just a second here. Okay. My name is Tom Dixon. I live at 3204 West 19th Street in lot 44. And when we received this original diagram of what everybody was proposing, first thoughts that came to our minds was why so big and why at our location? And then at the spring meeting at, at Aterra, we were told that, well, we're only gonna put one transformer in. The main thing that they needed to do was to connect the castle transmission line up here through this new substation to the 19th Street transmission line down here. And they needed to use switches and breakers to do that. Um, to do something like that, to put in a substation for that purpose, you need to have it located where it's near both of those transmission lines and near the existing substation that's providing all of the distribution lines. And when you look at this land, where is it undeveloped? The only undeveloped land is KU Endowment land. And so Everett, you had to go to KU Endowment to find land to use. Well, the obvious and seems like the, the best location is right next to the existing substation that already sits here by Metal Arc Lane. That land there is actually flatter than the land over here that they want to dig into. And you can provide a maintenance road by extending Irving Hill Road right through here, it's flat. There's actually a two tractor road that runs through there that could be developed into a better maintenance road. Um, everything is in place in terms of the transmission lines coming in, the distribution lines going out, and the connection here that they want to make taking the castle line down and connecting it to 
19th Street line, that can be replaced by simply using the existing 19th Street transmission line as the connecting line from Castle over to the West Campus substation, where it wouldn't meet the 19th Street transmission line coming in from the east. We were told at the Planning Commission meeting that the switches are small enough to actually be mounted on the power pole where the two transmission lines would connect. But the breakers are much bigger. They are the size of a very large desk and would have to be placed in the substation on the ground near the transformer. Well, this is the substation and a large desk looks like it would fit in here. So with everything in place, transmission lines, distribution lines, the ability to connect the two lines together, it seems like this is the perfect place to, for them to build their new substation. Only problem was they told us that KU Endowment wouldn't let them do that. So the question is why? Why won't KU Endowment let them develop this into a bigger substation? And because of that, I'm going to request the city commission require a written statement from KU Endowment explaining the situation in terms of why won't they let them expand the most ideal location for this substation. Thank you, Mr. Dixon. Okay, without any real uh, disruptions. Thank you. Okay, all right. Is there anyone else online to speak on this item? That's all the public comment. Okay, let's bring it back to the commission. Are there any further questions? I, I'm a little curious about some of the um, comments that Mr. Dixon is making. Could Evergy discuss placement and alternative placement? Thanks, Laura Evergy. Yes, um, again, when I mentioned earlier about the criteria that we have to have, one is a willing landowner and the willing landowner was KU Endowment. We couldn't select, when we went to them, they said that they were open to selling us a piece of property. The piece of property that we bought was what our option in terms of what they were willing to sell us. They have a 10 year plan. My understanding is that they, had, uh, they do have online, they have a future uh, direction of what they're gonna use that land for. I didn't, at the time we purchased the land, we didn't ask them, we just, again, we were looking for a, a willing landowner. They said, we want you to go as far south as you can and be east of that hill, and that's what we did. So that was a piece of property that we purchased was because that was what was available to us when we went to talk to you and then approached KU Endowment. But I don't, I'm guessing on why they didn't, we didn't go there, we didn't ask, we didn't, that wasn't part of the discussion. Um, any other questions that were? Um, regarding the transformers uh, themselves, I know we're uh, it's going to start out with one and it has potential for four. Um, what is, did you have any sort of forecasting of when that might come to fruition? Dennis Lawler, thank you. We do. Again, back to our expert planners. So when we were looking for a location, what we didn't have, one of the questions asked earlier was, can, can Evergy come back and buy that piece of property to the east of the substation we've got today? And the answer is, well, yes, we have to go through the same process. We don't want to do that. 
So when we were looking at what's the future growth of this area, what do we need to have in this area, and we also have to meet our standards and our specifications for building that substation. That's what required us to do that. So when we looked at future growth based on the growth that we've got and what we want to do, we incrementally, we will increase as we need a, a transformer, but we didn't want to have to come back. We, uh, an unforeseen uh, huge business came in in this area, and suddenly now we don't, our substation's not big enough. So now we got to come back to you and say, oh, you know what? We didn't know this was coming. We missed it. Now we got to expand the land. We didn't. We don't want to do that. We didn't want to come back. So this is why we do what we do today. Is we look at what the potential growth is over long term, and that's what we look at. Yep. Casey Casey Colburn, Bartlett and West. Um, also with substations, one thing you saw the ten foot wall to tear down a concrete wall and move it every time we add a transformer to extend the substation um, takes a lot of time and money through that. Also, with substations, there are grounding mats and everything like that in the ground. Um, and so to expand those every time and get that all tied in um, is a lot of difficulty. It's easier to build it at once um, and then add transformers um, as they get brought in um, through that process. And also, with any typical project, we always show the biggest footprint because we don't want to come back to the neighbors and say, one more time, we need to we need to expand it one more time, or we need to keep on expanding it. That through the typical planning process is we always try to show the largest footprint that, you know, for the the outlook of what it would be, so that we're not trying to say, ah, oh, it's only gonna be this size, but really be honest and upfront of what it could be. Any other questions? Yep. All right. Yep. Any discussion? Well, I'll start off. Um, I guess one thing I'm really disappointed in is in KU and that they know, knew the neighborhood was there, but yet they only offered this piece of land to Evergy, and I understand why they wanted to purchase it. I appreciate, I understand that at all, but I'm just disappointed that KU did not work a little bit more um, in, as far as protecting the neighbors and offering property that maybe was not as adjacent to that to the land to the residential landowners. Um, it would have been nice to see that. Um, I do think, as um, far as the swales go, it's typical design into a 100-year rainfall event. It would have been nice to have Matt Bond here to kind of talk to him a little bit more about what the specifics that he would be requiring, um, but he's not here. As far as the, um, the um, noise complaints, as well as the tree, I really want there to be definitive language in the SUP that requires staff to bring to city commission any unresolved violations. And maybe that's already in there. Um, I just would like to have a little bit more reassur reassurance that it is. So maybe Randy can help me understand that better. Yeah, I just want to just, I mean, you know, you've, you've said, said a few things and I just want to make sure I understand because what I want to see is definitive language in the SUP that requires staff to bring to city commission any unresolved violations that they have to bring it forward. Um, is that language that's going to be in the SUP? That's not typical language. I mean, basically what it is, is if there's a violation, 
there'll be a notice of violation. They have 30 days to come into compliance. They can appeal that. If they don't come into compliance, then under the city code, the process next process would bring it be bring it to the city commission for to revoke their SUP. But if there is an appeal process, which may end up in district court at some point in time, sure. that's not going to happen. But anyway, that's how that process would work. So under the city code, they, they're supposed to, whether it happens or not, I don't know, but that's all set forth in the SUP. And I don't know if it's section three or section four or five, it's one of those ones down there that, you know, if they're granted the SUP, then they have to comply with the city code and any other conditions that are imposed on it, like the noise, the drainage, whatever other conditions are. And if they violate any of those provisions, then they're in violation and are subject to have have their SUP revoked. Okay. What I had asked is that they are required to bring forth any unresolved violations, which what I mean by that, that means the due process has been, has occurred. Evergy has taken all steps that they can and that staff will bring it to us. Is it's It should not be a, a, a call made by staff, that it should come if there's unresolved violation issues and they've gone through all their due process, They that staff has to bring it to the city commission. Is that a true? This is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. Yes, I mean, if you if you follow the city code, I think what we had issues was whether that would happen or not, I don't know, but yes, they're required to bring that before the city commission to revoke an SUP or, you know, if there's, if there's not compliance, then we have to take action, so. Okay, okay, thank you, thank you. So with that, I just wanna say um, the neighborhood, you know, I, as I indicated earlier, I talked to Jeanette and Charles and a few other neighbors over a year ago at least, and and um, I thought I think they've done a great job of, of bringing this forward, and they have really um, caused change to the process, to the whole um, um, plat, to the whole layout of the of the um, substation, um, and so that did work. Now I realize it didn't stop it but they elicited quite a bit of change in Evergy, did listen to them. I do, I do know that the communication with Evergy, there's a concern by the neighbors that there wasn't enough or that it was just too much in between times between communications. And so that's, that's definitely a concern. But um, I appreciate the work that the neighbor has put into it. I've listened to them and, and I've, you know, went to the open houses and listened to Evergy side of it. I think that you know, you're, we're addressing the swale issue with the trees. We got definitive language on that. And also I believe we got definitive language on the, the noise that, that there is a recourse from the, um, by the neighbors to push that issue if it occurs. Um, given that, um, I'm going to support this, um, um, both aspects of this, this, of this pr process with, um, you know, I do feel like I do have some reassurance that, that there is a process that's going to be followed and it's, and it's going to be very definitive. And so I encourage Evergy to make sure that they do their hold up their end of the bargain and that they do everything they say they're going to do and continue to listen to the neighbors. So thank you. Um, can I ask you a question? Okay, so I don't disagree with you about any of that stuff. Um, but um, the SUP thing is interesting because mostly when we look at these SUPs, there are things that can be undone kind of easily, right? Like the Derrick Center or, you know, even Pool Hall or some of those things. And this is, I mean, 
I'm, I'm really glad you're, you're bringing up all this um, reassurances for the neighborhood, but I would still be concerned that this is a huge commitment and a, an enormous building pro project, and it isn't so much that they could just rip it out or do something else if they were suddenly incapable of complying. Yeah, I, I don't know what they would have to do to comply. I mean, th that would be up to staff to, but they've got to meet that 52 DBA. I mean, from what I understand, at least they gave them a hard number that they have to meet. It's not wishy-washy. And um, from what I hear staff saying is that it's going to be based on their measurements and it'll pass to go to court, then Evergy can present whatever evidence they have to, to um, you know, satisfy their side. I understand that. But what I hear is that staff is going to do the measuring and I appreciate that, and that those are the numbers they're going to rely upon, and that um, that if the process goes so far into where we, at the end of it, um, Evergy loses their due process, that the staff is required to bring it to the city commission at that time. That reassures me some, okay, because that's what I was worried about. It's like, whose measurements are going to take, you know, who's going to... And, um, you know, same with the trees, that there's language in the code that says they're going to have X number of days to, to fix it, which is typical for code. You know, you've got to give uh, the, the person a time to make it right. Um, and again, that's part of due process. So I'm, I'm with those two issues mainly, I'm, I feel pretty comfortable, more comfortable, I should say. Okay. And previously? Um, yeah, I, I would say I, I agree with you about, and, and I think you and I have uh, been in many meetings where it's discussed that it really would be nice, even when it's not required, to make some overtures to the neighborhood early and often. <laughs> and I, I continue to be stunned um, by the number of people who just don't even consider that um, until it's too late. And yeah. and what I what I notice is that the neighbors, in the absence of information, um, imagine the worst possible scenario, which they is reasonable under the circumstances. And so um, I, like you, really um, would encourage everyone to be far more communicative with their neighbors um, early and often, especially with something as enormous as this. Any other comments? Uh, yeah, uh, I'm going to support this. I think uh, Evergy has made good faith efforts to go ahead and listen to the neighborhood. I think the neighborhood has done a great job of advocating for themselves to get a better project um, near them. Um, it's not perfect, but it is better than it was before. Um, alluding to what um, the mayor said and the vice mayor said, I, I do, I would hope that there is a better communicative process. Um, I, we've shown how it can work and how it could be much better, especially with the new MSO building being proposed on the east side of town, um, getting ahead of it and making sure that those lines of communication are open uh, is always good. Um, Evergy, for the most part, has been a good actor in other things around town, so I can only hope that they would continue to be, um, especially with the neighborhood who are, um, you know, they are Lawrence, so um, if if you are a part of this community, I would hope that you would be a good actor in this community. So, um, that being said, uh, I, I I think uh, I, I'll go ahead and lend my support to this project, to both parts, both the rezoning and the SUP. 
I have no comment. I would make a motion, but my mouse is not working, so I can't get to that screen. <laughs> okay. Um, Somebody else is going to have to make I a have motion. any motions? Oh. Let's see here. I could start. We do one at a time, correct, Mary? Correct. Okay, I want to uh, move to approve the requ request to rezone Z21-00138, approximately 9.57 acres from UKU district to RS7 single dwelling residential district. Um, located in the southeast corner of the intersection of Castle Drive and Bob Billings Parkway, adopt on first reading ordinance number 9932. Second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Bless you. Um, passes four to zero. You want to do a second? Uh, you already did the first, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you. That, uh, we approve the special use permit um, SGP 21-00140 and adopt on first reading ordinance number 9933 for the development of an electrical substation, a minor utility on approximately 9.9 .9 acres in the southeast corner of the intersection of Castle Drive and Bob Billings Parkway, subject to the following condition, that the sound level for the facility is measured on the southern side of the southern side of the southern wall not exceed 52 decibels. Second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Passes four to zero. Um, let's make sure. Could could someone go get? <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. He was paying attention. It's not supposed to. Thank you, everyone, for being here. For your work. Thank you. All. Annette, thanks a lot for all your work. You should. Absolutely. Please do. Uh, that brings us to item number three. I do want to point out to everyone that it's 1026. You can hear. I've had to recuse myself. You can hear. Yeah. Andrew's ready. Sandra's ready. There she is. Are you there? Yep, there you are. Thank you. Um, please do not be surprised if the lights suddenly go out. Um, and walking around trying to keep them on. Uh, good evening, Sandy Day Planning Office. Uh, this item is related to the Stratford Water Tower. This is an item that is a result of the discussions that we have been having, specifically from the July 19 meeting when we brought forward the uh, final, I'm sorry, the final site plan based on the ordinance and the conditions that were set out uh, in the original approval of the special use permit. Um, in section 20-1306L, the city commission does have the authority to amend, suspend or revoke a special use permit. And it is this action this evening that we are asking for the city commission to amend the conditions that were associated with the ordinance 
um, of the original approval. And if just to remind you that that was related to a requirement to have a 10 foot pedestrian pathway along the west side of the park, as well as additional lighting. You have in your packet the original ordinance as well as the proposed uh, amended ordinance that would result in uh, the repeal of the original ordinance and then the new ordinance would be adopted. You also have a copy of the site plan with that change with the narrower pedestrian pathway. The lighting for this site um, is something that came out of a discussion with the neighborhood during those last few public engagement meetings with the uh, neighborhood. And that was a conclusion that the neighborhood really was not in favor of any additional lighting and that they wanted to move through um, an exercise for master planning of the park. That if additional lighting for the park um, comes out of that particular thing, then we would look at a, a lighting plan or a photometric plan in the future and not specifically with this uh, particular request. So the item before you this evening is really an amendment to that special use permit. As I mentioned, that attached site plan is that revision. Um, we have also provided notice both in the paper and written notice to the neighborhood of this meeting happy to answer any questions. Um, this action um, will also require a second reading, uh, which would be on your uh, future agenda. And then once published, um, that becomes the criteria by which we would evaluate and make the final administrative determination of the site plan. Thank you. Um, so um, if this went forward, you would not bring us the final site plan that would be administrative. Is that what you're saying? Sandy Day planning. Yes, um, that is correct. The item that you have in your packet is um, the, what the site plan looks like without that uh, 10 foot pedestrian path. It's a five foot pedestrian path that's on that west side. Otherwise, all of the other conditions that are shown, the, the conditions about moving the water tank further to the west, about reusing the um, existing building for uh, the emergency communication. There's a prohibition of adding any um, commercial communication on uh, this structure in the future, that fencing is limited to the fencing of uh, the emergency communication. So all of those conditions all say the same. Um, the only change between the, the drawing that version that you saw in July on July 19th and the one today has to do with actual the pedestrian path and uh, basically defers um, or possibly completely removes a requirement to provide lighting. Any future lighting, and I do want us to specify, any future lighting to the park does need to be compliant with um, the city of photometric plan requirements in um, 20, I believe it's 1103 of the land development code. So even though there's not a photometric plan component um, to the project immediately, um, if through that uh, park planning master plan, uh, with the neighborhood and the parks department, a photometric plan comes forward, we would review it for compliance with that standard. Any other questions? Uh, 
Is there any public comment on this item, which is the Stratford Water Tower SUP? Is there anyone online who would like to comment on the Stratford Water Tower special use permit? There's no public comment there. Hmm. Discussion? I think this just involves the sidewalk and the rest of it's going to be decided later. That's what I understand. So I'm fine with yeah. Right. Um, my, one of my issues that I, I had was with the extra stamped concrete on that road. And it doesn't sound to me like that's going to come before us. That was $30,000, possibly more than that. And I was, um, I thought there should be some real discussion about whether that is a worthy expense under the circumstances. Um, but I can't expect my fellow commissioners to want to have further conversation about that. Yeah, I don't think that's part of this. Right. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so. that was why I wanted to clarify. We yeah. won't get the opportunity to have that discussion. Yeah. Yep. Which I think, frankly, is fair for taxpayers and ratepayers to want to know what $30,000 does in a park on a road that's meant entirely for fire trucks. Are we ready for a motion? Hmm? Are we ready for a motion? Yep. I move that we adopt ordinance number 9930 on first reading, revising special use permit SUP 20-00113 pertaining to the pedestrian sidewalk and requires site lighting and requires site lighting for the Stratford Water Tower related to the construction of the new 140-foot tall tower and the demolition of the existing water tower located at 1225 Sunset Drive and repealing ordinance number 9821. Second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Passes five to zero. That brings us to item number four. Consider adopting resolution number 7448, approving the appropriating the 2023 City of Lawrence operating budget and adopting the 2023-2027 capital improvement plan. Good evening, Chair Mewellen, Director of Finance. Um, don't have much of a presentation tonight. Just uh, the staff report shows the uh, few items that uh, you all had uh, concerns about after the public hearing um, at the last meeting, and we just wanted to draw attention to that and make sure that you all know that the uh, revised recommended budget before you tonight um, addresses all of those concerns. So the first item we heard was that you would like to see the 35000 restored to the police budget for the Humane Society, and that that should come from an increase in the anticipated revenue from the ARPA uh, Revenue Recovery Fund. Uh, so we have done that. Uh, the second item was that the mill levy should remain the same as 2022 with the understanding that the library's portion is going to go up and necessarily the city's portion would go down. Uh, and then the third item uh, really just involves the uh, capital improvement plan. And there are a couple of changes here. So we just wanted to make sure we spelled those out. Um, we've been working on the new finance system as you all are aware. And in that new system will be a new numbering format for uh, hopefully better tracking of projects uh, moving forward. That numbering system wasn't available when we started the CIP process. So we sort of kept that same traditional numbering system throughout the process. Uh, we've landed on a numbering system now within the uh, new finance system. 
And so we've updated the final summary reports with that new number and then created a chart. So you can kind of track, this is what the number was in the old system. This is the number in the new system. So all that's available for you. Uh, we've republished all of those uh, project sheets. Um, they were on the original CIP budget uh, proposal, but we've added them to this one as well. Uh, but we did update two of those sheets, the two that you all talked about. So uh, the first project, which used to be known as MS-220029, is now MS-1-00012, the South Lawrence Trafficway. Uh, that project sheet has been updated so that the local improvements are no longer spelt, spelled out in specificity uh, so that those projects can be brought back to you uh, at the appropriate time. The second uh, was a merger. Um, as staff was reviewing the, um, the product project descriptions for what used to be RR230006 and PR259000, we really felt that those two uh, had a lot of overlap. And so to simplify, we created a new project, PR5-B23003, the Lawrence Loop Caw River Commons 7th Street to Constant Park project. And so that sheet has been updated and attached uh, as well so that you have the new project number, the new project name, and the combined project detail. Um, other than that, I don't believe I have any comments other than resolution 7448 is before you tonight. And should you all choose to approve that, the budget will be adopted and we will move forward with the state process to get that budget to the county commission uh, pursuant to state law. I'd be happy to answer any questions you may have. Any questions? Let's make sure there's no public comment on the budget and the CIP. Not a single question. So you guys understand that budget completely, right? No questions. That, that's surprising. How much is it? $547,647,000,000 and no questions. Concerned about $30,000 $30, drops in the bucket, but we can't be concerned about the big dollars being spent. The extra money to the police department, exceeding revenue neutral during some of the highest increases in assessed values in the last 10 to 20 years. I said it right when you guys actually came here and uh, your, your finance people and Craig participated in this and Brad, you even con congratulated him on it, on deciding how much we spend and then backing into it with the numbers. Now I've talked to a, a lot of different business people and I'm a business person myself. I've managed budgets for businesses my whole life. I have never once seen a budget process outside this civic environment where you decide how much you're going to spend first and then you figure out where you're going to get the money. That, that's what we in the Redneck Hills call bass backwards. Everybody in this business world everywhere decides, they, they look at their income, they look at their expected revenues, they look at their expected sales sales projected growth. There's all kinds of different ways to look at it, but it equates. You guys can't look at your expected revenue based on the revenue neutral figure and find a way to get your budget to match it. 
That's how the rest of us out here have to do it. You guys had a big thing on homelessness. This right here is going to aid in that process because you're going to have landlords that are going to be paying taxes and they're going to be passing it right on to their, their renters. I talked to a lot of landlords as well. And they're not all just rich and have money. They're leveraged to the hilt trying to make it through this stuff. So who's going to pay that extra tax money? It's going to be their people in those apartments. And right now with one bedroom apartments getting in between $800 and $1,000 a month, that's insanity. When you look at the average earnings of an individual, that's well over 30% of somebody's income. Well over 30% of the average person's income. If we want to focus on a, on a number with a three, Courtney, $30,000 spent on one project in this city is not even enough of a drop in the bucket for you to even worry about. Let's talk about the hundreds of, of people that are going to be put out of their apartments. That's real concern. You guys should be really concerned about the people backing into a budget with the numbers. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, I got a question. Uh, my name is Dr. Justin Spies. I'm running for uh, Douglas County Commissioner in District 1 as a Republican candidate. I attended your guys' uh, meeting last week over this budget proposal, and the presentation started off, I believe that guy's name is Philip, started off by saying that you guys had tasked him to find some way to cut some money to save the, uh, the Prairie Park. Uh, Nature Center, uh, $375,000, and lo and behold, he was able to to find some stuff to cut and, and save it, and you guys saved the day. Um, but my question is, uh, how much did that, that, I guess you would call art exhibit or art piece out in front of the, the police station cost? It cost $374,000, so it was the equivalent of saving the park. I, why, why did you guys vote for that? I mean, that, that is the definition of just bad optics, man. Everybody I talk to just clowns you guys for doing that. I mean, first, of all, it's the ugliest piece of art you've ever seen. Wasn't it? Yeah, it wasn't a local artist, but it's hidden. It's between, it's behind Walmart in front of the police station. Nobody even sees it. Why did you spend money on that? Don't, don't you get it that our money, it's disrespectful to take our money and spend it on something like that and then have to cut something that everybody wants and then magically, lo and behold, you're able to find magical savings for it. Why did you spend that much money on that? What were you thinking? What were you thinking? Any further public comment? Is there any public comment online? Chris Flowers. Hi, um, this is Chris Flowers. Um, I'd like to just point out again, um, if I was to save money, I'd be cutting the drug dogs and I'd be cutting uh, police and schools. But I wanted to bring up something since you all are experts. I was just wondering if someone, if you've looked at page 207, it's about the police gun range. And it says that, um, a city-owned range would reduce long-term costs. And it says that we pay $20,000 a year for uh, maintenance and rent at the some private-owned shooting gallery. But and it, if the project's going to cost $6 million, I've just been doing the math, and if you take $20,000 a year, it's going to be 300 years 
before just to equal six million. So, and here's what I found really interesting is if you look at the prioritization guideline score for sound and fiscal stewardship, it get, it scored zero. So if it's actually gonna be saving us money in the long term, then why is it scoring zero for sound and fiscal stewardship? I don't think it is gonna save us money. I think that's just a lie that it would save us money because the math doesn't add up. It's it's scoring zero for sound and fiscal stewardship. So I just wonder if someone could explain to me how it will actually save us money. Um, also, how how many years before it saves us money? Like, will it have to exist 10, 20, 50, 100 years before it saves us money? There's nothing in there that says exactly how it's going to save us money. It just says it will, but the, the the sound and fiscal stewardship score gets a big fat zero. What scored the highest was a strategic plan outcome alignment, and it scored four. And I, I don't know how that scores so highly with our strategic plan. It also scored two for engaged and empowered team, which I would think would score more than the outcome. And I'm just wondering, maybe it's just city staff just given scores just so they can get something and say, hey, look at this score. But I, I don't know, a, a zero for sound and fiscal steward, stewardship does not sound like something that's saving us money in the long run. Thank you. Stephen Watts. Hi, thank you. Uh, I have to back up. Yeah, I understand the art selection process. And, you know, there was a lot of protestation about the art piece in front of the City Hall building, which I think is quite nice. <laughs> the one out there on the police station, well, you know, I wouldn't have picked it, but I understand it's a committee process. So I ain't hating on you for that stuff, this, that, and the other, and the gun range. Yeah. How about a gun range for all in Lawrence? There used to be one over at the public building. And it got shut down by the soccer moms. We could build a gun range for all of the town so everybody could go in there. That way we know if the police are really in there firing away their pistols. You know, there's a new plastic device you can put on your pistol and make it an automatic. Yeah, 30 shots. Pistol. Anyway, for the budget issue, there's no reason that there are police in the schools. That's in excess of $600,000 in excess. Absolutely no reason for the police to be in the schools. Social workers in the schools, good idea. Psychologists in the schools, okay, I'll give you that one. Counselors, okay. Paraprofessionals, you bet. Police in the schools, what the hell are you guys thinking about? It's easy money. Nobody's going to feel any pain. The police officers who are assigned to the school systems who love it, I love them. They need to switch gears and move out of the cop bill and into helping people land. Once upon a time, police used to do that. Those were different times. I'm an old man. I remember this. 
Come on, man. It's money and budget. Thanks for your time. Aloha. Any other any other public comment online? Jeremy Rose Cushel. Uh, yes, greetings. Being that there was just a discussion and decision about land that was held by a landholder who hadn't done anything with it for many, many years. And now that you're passing the budget, I think it should be re-emphasized, especially in relationship to the next item that, that is about deliberative democracy at a crucial time when it's under major threat by very big authoritarian forces, by forces that seek to undermine a deliberative democracy across the country, that this is not a time for incrementalism or sort of tinkering at the edges. So once again, I'll emphasize that the city needs to look at a whole nother way of financing itself which includes shifting the tax burden in terms of property taxes, which as I've pointed out, really goes to uh, hurt those that improve their property, the middle class and the working class and the poor who don't even have property the most. And then meanwhile, the, these basically deadbeat landholders that we saw this go down all around the Rock Chalk Park scenario too, sit on land while the public invests in it over decades and then reaps almost all of the benefits of it. We need to move to a land value tax system and we will have much more abundant resources in terms of a tax base and we won't have to be worrying about shutting down uh, Prairie Park Nature Center or worrying about $30,000 because we will actually gain back the hundreds of millions of dollars likely being sat upon by deadbeat landholders right now, not people who own uh, own property and are improving it and renting it out, but I'm talking about those, they know who they are. They sit on big parcels of land, the city uh, produces massive public infrastructure, and then they reap the entire rewards. I'll just, one last thing, look at Henry George again, a real indigenous American economic philosopher, Progress and poverty. Thank you. Any other public comment online? Michael Ullman. Hello. Good evening, commissioners. My name is Michael Ullman. And uh, speaking for myself, I, I want to uh, comment that the project, the line item MS220029, which is the South Lawrence Traffic Way Improvements, I want to thank you very much for removing any mention of the Wakarusa extension from that line item. Then, um, speaking as a member of the Riverfront and Center design team, I want to thank you also for combining the Caw Valley Commons line item and the Parks and Recreation Lawrence Loop line item because that, as I wrote in my letter, is going to position Lawrence very well for applying for a raise grant. So thank you for that. Then uh, speaking for Sustainability Action Network, if I may, I'd like to share my screen. And that is, well, um, 
Hmm. I'm not finding it. <laughs> does does a JPEG not come up? Well, it, I'll abandon sure. that. I'll explain. Um, it's line item um, MS230074. That's geometric improvements for 23rd and Naismith. This has been um, a topic, this intersection has been a topic for a number of years when the proxy development was put in in 2018. Um, they, Opus developer, dedicated right away for a shared use path along 23rd Street, right by Naismith and 23rd. The Naismith Valley Trail to the south on Naismith hops across Naismith to the west side on, on a blind curve and then ends at 23rd Street. But north of 23rd, the city is about to build a shared use path on the east side of Naismith up to 19th Street at KU. A few years ago when this was all taking place, Stuart Boley suggested that that trail from Naismith Valley should stay on the east side of Naismith, reconfigure the traffic lanes of Naismith as it approaches 23rd and make room for that trail to continue on the east side by which it would now align with the new SUP north of 23rd on the east side. I hope that all follows. I had a map to show you all that, but oh well. <laughs> anyway, all of this should be looked at in this geometric um, configuration. And the east, the west 23rd corridor study is coming. They need to take all this into consideration when looking at that intersection. That's thank my you. suggestion. So thank, thank you, you very much. Any other public comment online? Okay, let's bring it back to the commission. Um, I did want to say, and I saw Derek pop on for a minute there, um, and it was nice to hear from Michael Allman, but I totally disagree. I, I'm really uncomfortable with combining two items in the 11th hour when we've had um, all this time to look at these and prioritize them. We did not make any indication that um, these should be combined. In addition to that, if I, unless something's changed, um, the Carl River Commons was slated to have money in 2023, while the 7th Street is not intended to have any spending until 2025. And um, what I guess I don't want is for money for one project to steal from another project uh, to its detriment. Um, or um, as, as sometimes happens, we as you mentioned there's overlap. It may very well be that one of these is better than the other. And frankly, as particularly regards the 7th Street, I, I'd really like some input from um, some engineers and MPO on whether or not some of those ideas that I guess I've seen bandied about are even safe or appropriate. Um, so that, commissioners, is, is my comment. I don't know if Derek wants to comment on it, but... Um, Sure, um, Derek Rogers, Director of Parks and Recreation. Um, we're comfortable with whatever this uh, commission wants to uh, decide on this item. And, and sorry, apologize for the 11th hour, but here's what we were thinking. Um, both CIP items are addressing the uh, same section, the Carl River Commons and the uh, Parks and Rec proposal 
of trying to get from the Amtrak station at 7th Street to Constant Park. And uh, the PR was based on using a land route and the Carl River Commons was looking at a water crossing. And so the thought was, uh, since we both were duplicating projects, could both of those be combined to fund the design concept by merging those two that would look at both the land and the water aspect that could provide design. And then uh, that could be combined in the new line, which we saw. Um, by combining the funds, the idea was that uh, we would avoid confusion with two separate line items trying to solve the same um, connection issue with the Lawrence Loop, provide better fiscal stewardship by combining efforts with one design for looking at all routes, whether it be land or water, and to better position for grants in the future, looking at the raise of federal grants. Uh, so that, that was the thought process of doing this. Um, we can go into it further, or um, if the commission would like it as two separate items, that's um, fine with us too. Um, kind of one of my understandings is part of one of the things that um, that group that Michael Allman was referring to might need is simply a letter of support from the city. Um, and and um, I don't think they have anything like that yet, um, except you know that it some some of their um, suggestions are appear somewhere in our CIP. Um, I, I I appreciate you wanting. I, I appreciate your explanation. I feel about better about it now. Um, but I am I I also realize that by that rationale. Um, all a lot of these things we, we've put on the grant list, um, even when they're a little further out. And if something is found um, by the grant company, I'm sorry, I forgot their name already. Um, I apologize. Um, or staff that um, that changes could be made if that is constructive. Um, so I, I just wanted to kind of make those points. I again, not necessarily sure I'm. This is a detail I'm going to convince my fellow commissioners on, um, but um, I was certainly concerned that we had prioritized these, and um, one of them, in, in fact, may be more attainable than the other, or um, or should be prior prioritized the way you had them prioritized based on their um, scores. I, I see what you're saying. I, I guess the flip side is, is if you actually build the River Commons in 23, then you wouldn't build the seventh to constant in 25. You just wouldn't need it anymore. Right. And so um, I guess I did not, I didn't look closely enough. I know you updated the detail sheets. Did we move, where do we move the money? Did we move additional money to 23? Do we move it to 25 or would we, or would you just leave the money the same in just two different years? Jeremy Wilmoth. Um, <clears throat> so the funded portion did not change. Um, okay. There was initially, um, 1.762,000 uh, funded 
for what used to be called Project PR 259000, which was the Lawrence Loop uh, Trail, 7th Street to Constant Park. The only funded portion of the Caw River Commons Phase A was 443,000. So the combination of those two is 2,205,000. And if you look at the new project, PR5-B23003, Lawrence Loop, KRC, 7th Street to Constant, because uh, I'm just not really good with names, uh, the funded portion is 2,205,000. So it's the exact same amount of money. Um, really, as uh, Derek indicated, the CIP committee looked at this and felt like we could have competing interests going after grants, and that could weaken our position on both instances uh, to make it look like uh, the city is actually uh, putting one project against another rather than uh, making a cohesive project and a cohesive grant application. So the consolidation was more for a unification of purpose that the goal is to get from 7th Street to Constant Park. And one was a land route and one was a water route. And we wanna combine our efforts of that uh, purpose and make sure that uh, we're you know, putting all of our eggs behind uh, the, the most advantageous route. But in terms of funded, unfunded, the uh, funded piece did not change. I think the unfunded changed just slightly um, to address what we believe would be the full funding uh, needed for the water route that we're going to have to find in a grant, which is 7.7 .7 million. I, I think with that explanation, I'm fine with the with the combination. Any other comments on this or anything else? I do have a question on something else. I just realized on the the police items, the vehicle canopy as well as the shooting range. I thought those were unfunded. Jeremy Wilma, well, finance director, they are unfunded. Um, the detail sheets are still attached just because they were a part of the process. Uh, so we did not remove any of the detail sheets with the exception of the ones I indicated. PR 259000 and RR 23006 were removed from what's on tonight's agenda and replaced with PR 5B23003 to show that consolidation. You can still find those sheets on our original uh presentation which is attached as well okay yeah okay thanks a lot I, used, I think in the past on the cip sheets that we would show on there whether it was a funded or unfunded item and i don't it may be buried in here somewhere but i just don't see it right off the bat right off the bat jeremy wellman so at the very bottom uh it says funding sources um one of our challenges is the desperate systems that we currently have so in some instances, staff would recommend a funding source, and in some instances, they put unfunded, but the ultimate funding that you see before you is based on the scoring from the prioritization model. So um, on the one that Mr. Flowers indicated earlier um, about the shooting range, that one's actually unfunded. Um, yeah. And primarily for the reason that it scored so low. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, the, the funding sheet is a really good place, or I'm sorry, the, the detail sheet is a really good place to get a description and a justification for why staff felt the project was necessary or the community member who yeah. uh, made the recommendation felt it was necessary. The prioritization guideline score then would be the peer reviewed score uh, that was utilized for final funding determination. And those uh, two summary sheets um, are the best place to indicate what is funded versus uh, what's either uh, targeted for grant funding 
targeted for a possible ballot initiative or ultimately unfunded due to no uh, discernible funding source currently identified. Great, thanks. I, I see that now where it is. Um, and I remember it was there last year like that, so I just overlooked it, sorry. Any other questions or discussion? Just got a few things to say about the budget as a whole. I mean, this is kind of our last opportunity to talk about this budget till we get to next year, 2023. So, so at the beginning of this year, I had um, indicated that there were three things I was really looking at for this year. One was to close our budget gap that we had from last year. The other was to increase and to continue increasing our investment in our infrastructure. And the other one was implementing the built for zero housing model. And those were the three top items on my mind at the time. So um, with our budget process, we have gotten closer to closing that, working on closing that gap. And I really appreciate that very much. On our capital improvement plan, one thing I very much like about this budget is that um, this being the backbone of keeping our community working is this is the largest amount of money money invested that I've seen since on the commission into our infrastructure. And it's $111 million for 2023. And if you think about it, that represents over a quarter of our budget, which I think is extremely significant. And I really appreciate the work that's been been done on that. Um, we're also going through very systematically going through the backlog of our maintenance um, issues and starting to work through those at a good pace. Um, so these investments that we are making today is really going to save us millions in the future and keep that pressure off of the rising utility rates and the emergency funding due to maintenance failures that we don't address in a timely manner. So I believe that continue, continuing to fund our CIP, CIP in this manner is really the right thing to do for our community. I do want to give credit for that, um, not only to this commission, but also to the previous two commissions that were instrumental in bringing a renewed focus on the importance of comprehensive, comprehensively evaluating and maintaining our infrastructure. And I commend staff for leading in that effort. I know when Craig came on board, that was one of his big items he discussed in his first 100 days is the, the lack of um, investment in our infrastructure. I really do appreciate that. The other item that I wanted to point out was the creation of and the continued funding of our housing uh, initiative division. I really believe that this can be a game changer for this community. I really do. And, and what we heard tonight is just the beginning of what I hope to continue to hear many new projects and, and procedures and policies that are gonna come out of that division to help us address our uh, homeless population as well as the afford affordable housing issue. I think we need to find this balance in our community that, so that members of our community can feel safe in our parks, our trails, but then also find a, find a way to make sure that, we, that those who are houseless are treated with dignity. Um, you know, both the housing as well as the homeless needs really can't be addressed without a good partnership with our county government as well as our social service agencies. And it's only together that we can develop and implement policies that will significantly help fulfill these goals. Based on what I've seen today, I believe both governments are working on programs that complement each other in a very good way. And I'm really appreciative of the work that both of, both of our gov governments are doing as well as the commissions themselves. And I believe that having a good housing program that accomplishes the goals that we've set out is the right thing to do for our community. 
And another item that hasn't been discussed that this much during this budget season is the fact that we closed the salary gap for our city staff to the tune of $10 million over the last two years. This meets the recommendations in our salary study, which I believe was conducted in 2018. We have straight stayed true to these recommendations and our staff deserve no less. Taking care of our staff is the right thing to do. And I appreciate the work that's been done on that. Um, the final thing that I want to talk about is our financial department. We have spent several years um, working to bring that system into the 21st century. And we've already shown great progress um, in getting our ho financial house in order. I think that was shown very positively in our, in our um, evaluation this year in our audit. Um, it showed that we've made great progress in that. So this, this new system will provide us the ability to track our finances as a full organization, as well as break down the silos of the past and find efficiencies across the board. This type of investment into our community is the right thing to do with this budget. And the last thing I wanna point out is just our priority-based budgeting process. I know we've been working on that for the past few years, and I think it's a good time to continue to help the community members understand that better. And I would like to see more community engagement and better development of a dashboard that provides a clear view of the process of how that works. So I'm gonna repeat what I said at the beginning of the year, and that is it would be short-sighted, I believe it would be short-sighted for us to take on any new endeavors until our own house is in order. And that we work to properly fund the current programs that help our community members live a better life and a more equitable, a better and more equitable life. So the, pro the progress that we've made with this budget, there are still risks that I believe need to be considered. So I task staff with continuing to find efficiencies and possible program cuts that aren't as limited as that was proposed this year and that reaches across departments. I don't believe we've done that to, to the fullest extent, extent possible. I expect to see more options next year. And finally, I would just add that we need to diligently work to find a way to lower the mill levy on future budgets. Thank you. Any other comments? Yeah, I'm just gonna be quick, as always. Um, uh, yeah, I just wanted to thank staff and everybody involved in the budget process, uh, folks coming in and commenting um, that helped us define and shape the budget. I know this is an arduous process. We're all learning with this, and uh, we're all working to perfect the system and make it better. Um, but uh, I, I just wanted to thank everybody for being involved in the process because that is just great in itself, and I'm really glad that people care this much about this city to want to help it. So thank you much. Thank you. Any other comments? All right. I will entertain. Entertain a motion. I move that we adopt resolution number 7448, approving and, and appropriating the 2023 City of Lawrence operating budget and adopt the 2023 to 2027 capital improvement plan as presented. Second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Passes five to zero. Um, we, if we are going to continue with this discussion um, in our last few items, we will have to extend the meeting. Alternately not. Um, any? I don't want to no. extend it. I'd, I'd rather have a, a good solid discussion about this and not at the wee hours of the night. 15. Yeah. 
I think that would be the best thing to do. Um, therefore, I am entertaining motions. Move to adjourn. Second. Moved. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 That passes five to zero. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Jeremy.